Hey, everybody. This episode of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast is brought to you by Hover. If you go to hover.com forward slash Rogan, you will get 10% off your domain name registrations. Hover is a company that I use for my domain name registrations. Uh, it's a, a very quick, easy, clean interface. You uh, get free who is um, domain privacy. So uh, you don't have to let people know if you've got some freaky ass website and you don't want your mom finding out about it, you can hide that shit. Um, if you go to hover.com forward slash Rogan, again, you will get 10% off your domain name registrations. Go there, check it out. They are owned by the same people that own Ting and uh, there's sort of this, the same ethic behind it. It's, they're trying to offer you a, a very cool service um, uh, with a, a decent price that's not ripping anybody off. And it's uh, something that we all need if we want to set up and establish websites. So go there. Check it out. Um, it is uh, – what are the other things that I have to say about this? <laughs> it's a, it has a lot of cool uh, uh, options that aren't usually found when you buy a domain. Like if you go to like the, some of the other guys, you don't get all these extra bonuses that this uh, company does, like like uh, hiding your personal information. You know uh, the security of that, which is nice because you don't want you know if you buy a domain, you don't want everyone to know your home address. You know? Yeah, most of the time you usually have to pay for that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's uh, it's the same company that owns Sting, so uh, we support them. They support us, and it's it's a cool company. So go there. Hover.com forward slash Rogan. Get yourself 10% off your domain name registrations. All right, you freaks. We're also brought to you by Audible.com. And if you go to Audible.com forward slash Joe, you will get one free audio book and one free month of Audible service. Audible is uh, an excellent uh, service for uh, use of uh, audiobooks. Um, I became a big fan of audiobooks many years ago. It's one of the best ways to spend time where you're forced to sit down. Um, and, you know, usually it's wasted time, whether you're on a plane or whether you're driving somewhere, stuck in traffic or on a train or something like that. Uh, audiobooks uh, make a, an amazing companion and, and actually make a boring trip enjoyable. Um, Christopher uh, Ryan, our, our friend who is on the podcast again today, I believe your book is available. Yeah. Um, Sex at Dawn is available in audio form. At yeah, it was, it was voted one of the best uh, audio books of 2010 when it came out. And I, I actually read the preface, which is a story of being attacked by a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, who read the book for you? Who reads the uh, – Well, there are two actors. There's a female and a male actor who read uh, – because we, we asked that there be two, you know, a male and a female voice uh, since it was co-authored with my wife. Someone's all into equality and shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was kind of weird though. I mean they, the – Why didn't you read it? Well, I offered to. They wouldn't let you? And then they were like, no, nah, thanks anyway. Sons of bitches. Thanks, but no thanks. Um, yeah, when you're a first-time author, you don't get a lot of respect, I got to say. You know, the second time around, it's a whole different thing if the first book sells. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, but first time around, you – they treat you – in fact, I had a dispute with one of the editors and um, – which ended with her crying and hanging up on me. Um, <laughs> but in an earlier con- – <laughs> Crying is – there's no crying in publishing. <laughs> and then she quit. Yeah, like within – yeah. I, really? You yeah. made her quit? Well, I don't know that it was me or I was the last straw or whatever, but yeah, it didn't end well. But an earlier conversation with her, she was saying something and I said, you know, she, oh, what, they, we're talking about the cover art. 
and they had different ideas. And I was like, well, you know, the one you sent me is cool, but why don't you send me your other ideas and, and then we can brainstorm together. And she was like, um, uh, no, no, we authors can only see one idea. And I said, we're business partners here. Why can't I um, – what does that mean? Why, why can't I be involved in this? And she said, well, we can't have the inmates running the asylum. Oh, Jesus. You're a prisoner now? Well, a mental hospital. And I, and I said, you know, I'm a psychologist. My wife actually does run a mental hospital, my co-author. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a 32-year-old idiot. So what <laughs> What the hell is this? And yeah. Is that what made her quit? You calling her a 32-year-old idiot? Well, I don't know if I used those words, but that uh, was the might, implication. You might have called her a cunt. I, I might have. You might yeah. have. It comes out sometimes. There's, there's, there's moments when it's necessary. Um, uh, Audible, uh, other than that, Audible has nothing to do with the Christopher Ryan incident. No, they were wonderful, except for not letting me read the whole book. Those sons of bitches. What's but, wrong with you people? But the monkey attack's the most important part. Yeah, and you read that. I did read that. They should do a revised version and let you do it, because I generally prefer, except Stephen King. Stephen King is goddamn terrible at reading his books. He's really? so boring. You know, when you have a, an author read the Stephen King books, they become exciting. There's so much drama. And, but Stephen King is so flat. I mean, he's an amazing author, one of my favorite fiction authors, authors ever. But uh, if you get his audiobooks, do not get one that's read by him. That's my, my warning to you. Anyway, go to audible.com forward slash Joe. Get yourself a free audiobook and 30 free days of service. It's an excellent company. I have been using them for uh, almost a decade now. I've been using them for a long time, so I, I can stand up for Audible. They're, they're outstanding. And, again, they support this podcast. And you, you already know about Onnit.com. We don't have to say that today. Let's just get to Stanley Krippner. He's driven, driven all the way here from San Francisco with Dr. Christopher Ryan. And then they even did a podcast along the way. They don't give a fuck, folks. They double dip. <laughs> they're making things happen. Cue the music, Brian. Let's let these, get these people going. Joe <laughs> Rogan Podcast. The Joe Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day. That was the weirdest one you've ever done. <laughs> yeah, well, you caught me off guard. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I was, I don't know, I was waiting for on it, I guess. Yeah, well, we just we just rushed through that. Uh, Stanley Krippner, thank you very much, sir, for coming down here. Yes, a pleasure. And Mr. Ryan, thank you very much for bringing Stanley. Um, oh, when yeah. we uh, first did a podcast with Chris, uh, he, one of the things he, he talked about was you. And he said uh, that you're a dear friend and that if if it's possible, we got to get you on the podcast. So. We, and here I am. I'm so proud. I'm so honored. Uh, I can't believe you, you you actually bothered to make the trip all the way down from San Francisco and do a podcast along the way. How can how can people get that podcast that you guys did along the way? Well, I guess I guess we'll put it up this week. And I you know, we've got a bunch in the pipeline, but we'll just bump everybody else and uh yeah, people can hear us driving down from Bakersfield on Route 5 complaining about the cow shit smell, you know, which is a big part of that trip. <laughs> yeah, that is a weird drive, right? Yeah. It's a weird drive. I, I took that drive before the elections, and uh, that's when you realize uh, California, although California is mainly liberal, there's these – pockets where we have cities where everybody mm. you know is fairly literate and educated right and then if you spread out towards where they grow things right. for some reason <laughs> those folks like to believe in nonsense yeah and uh, they had mitt romney bumper stickers and mitt romney posters and like where am i am i in idaho or something like that mm. am i in, what's going on here what 
do you know who Mitt Romney is? You, I want to pull over and go, yeah. what's going on? What is this? You know that line about Pennsylvania. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and they say there's Philadelphia on one side, Pittsburgh on the other side, and Alabama in between. It's <laughs> so true. My, par- my parents used to live in Wilkesbury. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's sweet. That's no joke. Man. That's where it's... people wear camouflage to the grocery store. It's total yeah. Rush Limbaugh oh, country. Yeah. Well, there's so many deer out there. You never know when you're going to have to yeah. duck behind a car and shoot one. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, tangentially speaking, that's the name of my podcast. Anyone wants to check out my extended conversation with Stanley, if they had, I'm sure they won't get enough. Never enough, Stanley. That's Stanley. What was your your name that the shaman gave you? Your your spirit name? Well, Rolling Thunder gave me the name. Everybody's favorite. <laughs> that's right. That was the name. Everybody's favorite. Yes, everybody because loves everybody he talked to liked me, but a Native American who was not a shaman, um, who I dedicated this book to, Ed Richardson, gave me the name of Wacosta Washte. And the best way to translate that is to use a Yiddish term, mensch. Oh, oh you're nice. a mensch. Nice. Yeah, so I thought that was a great honor, coming from the first Native American who got a clinical psychology PhD in the country. Wow. wow. And that's this gentleman, Rolling Thunder? You no, have... that is the... Ed Richardson, oh, who we dedicated the book to, and regrettably, as soon as the book came out, he passed over to the advanced age. So the book is dedicated to him and his memory and our long friendship over the years. Now, you are um, one of the few people that is alive today that can say they did acid with Timothy Leary. Oh, good heavens, I'm, I'm sure there are more people than <laughs> I, because Tim Leary did acid with a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's more, but the numbers are fairly small. I would say it's less than one-tenth of one percent of the whole oh, population. Probably so. But you know how it is, small numbers can have magnificent effects. In chaos theory, you have about the butterfly wings causing the typhoon in Malaysia. Did, yeah, that's what they say, but that's... People don't understand. The no, weather. that's a metaphor. It doesn't actually happen, but that's a metaphor. Just like a lot of stuff in shamanism is metaphor, and you deal with it at the metaphorical level, and it makes sense. Mm. The, the whole term shamanism is is very tricky, isn't it? It's very a, tricky. It's you say it amongst uh, respectable company, and they go, "Okay, yeah, you know shamans, yeah." And yeah. what what happens with these shamans? Do you do you go to spirit worlds and? And you're like, well, yes, actually. And then like, okay. And then, and then immediately the conversation becomes they're talking to a silly person, right? Which is what When happens. I talk to psychologists, I don't even use the word spirit world. For one thing, to be a shaman, you have to be appointed a shaman by a community. And if the community doesn't consider you worthy of being a shaman, a spiritual leader, then you don't pass the test. And instead of saying we go to a spirit world, I say, well, shamans get knowledge and information in ways that other members of their community can't. And I just leave it up to that. They say, well, what ways? Well, they get information from their dreams. They get information by observing plants, observing people. They have a very, very keen sense of observation and insight. And then it starts to make sense to them. Oh, you mean like a therapist? Well, shamans were the first therapists because they mediated problems between couples. They did a lot to keep the community together. They helped people to get better if they were sick or if they were feeling poorly. 
And so they were also the first physicians and the first doctors. And they used herbs that, for one reason or another, seemed to work. So taking it down to a very practical level, you can talk about shamanism and give them the due respect that I think they deserve. As a psychologist, there's, <clears throat> and that's what you are, um, there's a, not that many people in that realm of professional business who accept those terms. They use the term shaman, and it's, it's, that's where it gets tricky, right? It gets tricky in that it's almost like you need a professional word to you know to to replace it that, mm. that people are going to accept in 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 the mainstream actually the word shaman comes from the field of anthropology really? and the word shaman originated in siberia nobody knows just when because there were three different <laughs> tribes in siberia that used words similar to shaman but then anthropologists began to notice that spiritual practitioners in other indigenous societies did pretty much the same things. They helped people, they healed people, they used their imagination, they did rituals, they told myths and narratives. And so these other people who had their own words for shaman all got lumped together by anthropologists using the term shaman. So we're sort of stuck with it. And all that I can say is don't take it that seriously because each tribe that you visit has its own word. Rolling Thunder, for example, the subject of our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, never called himself a shaman. He called himself an intertribal medicine man because he was able to learn the medicine systems of five or six different Native American tribes. He had a whole trailer full of herbs, hundreds of herbs, and I saw them uh, firsthand, and he would take the herbs that would be most suitable for whoever he was helping out, as he put it, whoever he was doctoring. And then, of course, he did a little ritual that went along with it. Now, how much of the herbs that he gave people were actually effective, and how much of it was a placebo? You know, this is one of the important ways in which shamans contributed to the evolution of the human species. Obviously, some of the herbs were medicinal. Obviously, some of them were not, but they worked anyway because of the placebo effect. But imagine a sick person coming to a shaman, the shaman giving them herbs, doing a ritual, waving a feather, rattling a rattle, banging a drum, and the person, for one reason or other, gets well. Now, what about the people that don't get well? Those are people that don't have the imagination. They don't have the uh, response to the placebo effect, and so they die. What happens when they die? Their genes drop out of the gene pool. Who is left? The people who are left, the people who are able to access their inner healing ability and pass down those genes to their descendants. And that's why today... We have hypnosis, we have biofeedback, we have visual imagery, and all of the other products of mind-body medicine that work. The, the placebo effect highlights a, a really fascinating aspect of the human animal, this, this ability to heal itself by being tricked or tricking itself into believing that it's taking medicine and then forcing some sort of an effect. It's, very, it's a very strange and slippery term, you know, it's, or, or slippery ability. And uh, it seems so strange that the ability to be tricked would be of evolutionary advantage, the ability to trick yourself into thinking you're taking medicine and healing yourself. We can't really do that consciously. 
We can do it consciously, but let's go back to evolution. Rolling Thunder often used the term, sometimes you have to trick a person into getting well. You have to trick a person into using their own self-healing capacity, their own inner shaman, as he put it. And now you can use that deliberately. We have people who are able to hypnotize themselves, who are able to get visual images of their bodies mending the bones together and getting well, of the cancer cells shrinking. This doesn't work for everybody, but visual imagery as a part of a holistic program where mainstream medicine is also used can give that extra little edge that can help a person to get well. And that little extra edge is a linear descendant of what shamans did some 50,000 years ago. It's uh, it's interesting the the placebo effect in that it, it it's a, it's a scientific term, but yet it's not a very scientific action. the The action of it is is really sort of mystical. I mean the the ability to heal with the mind and using the imagination. It's a very very strange thing, and um, it's very strange and connected with shamanism because shamanism itself the idea that these plants um, contain information and that especially like ayahuasca it's my favorite shamanistic brew just because of the fact that they had to figure out over these hundreds of thousands of different plants in the Amazon which one contained DMT and which one contained an MAO inhibitor yes. and combine the two of them. If you don't know what that means, folks, the DMT, which is the most potent psychedelic drug known to man, it, it exists in a bunch of different forms in nature, but it's not orally active. The reason why, um, you know, you could eat grass <clears throat> and you don't get, you don't have a DMT trip is because your body produces something called monoamine oxidase. And monoamine oxidase, uh, you can inhibit that, and you can inhibit it with natural plants. Well, somehow or another, in the course of who knows how many thousands of years, the Amazon shaman have had figured out how to take the vine of one plant and the leaves of another plant and combine them together. And it was DMT and a natural MAO inhibitor, and that's what that's what created ayahuasca which is an orally active version of DMT the only orally active version that we're we're aware of um, and they did it they say by talking to the plants that the oh, plants yes. told them yes this is discussed in another recent book of mine <coughs> the mystifying shamanism where we take all these mysteries of shamanism this is a book by Adam Rock and myself and we demystify them and put them into psychological terms now, what you say about ayahuasca is absolutely correct. And I've been to the Amazon, I've taken ayahuasca in Brazil, and it's very powerful, it's very valuable, it's a very good teaching tool to the people down there and even to people from Western cultures. And the question comes up, as you said, of all of the thousands of plants in the rainforest, how did shamans know how to put these two plants together? And... I've asked the shamans about that. They say, well, the plants taught us. That's good enough for them. I think that it was a little more complicated than that. I think that they watched animals take plants. And as the animals began to turn on and show unusual behavior, the shamans began to do that themselves. Now, this doesn't really account for the combination of the plants, but maybe 
they were able to use trial and effect. Besides being the first doctors or the first psychotherapists, shamans were the first scientists. They used trial and effect. They tried out substances on themselves. If they worked on themselves, they turned to other people. But the genesis of ayahuasca is sort of lost in the mists of prehistory. And it's a fascinating topic. And everything that you say about the Mao inhibitors and the DMT is absolutely correct. It really is a fascinating topic, and it's such a, a fragile piece of history because the shamans are the ones who understand and how, know how to make the brew, and they pass this information down from generation to generation. And if they're gone, if they're lost, and we're losing rainforest by, you know, by the acre, like literally as we're talking, acres yes. are being dissolved. And slowly but surely, these people are getting pushed out of their natural home, and we're losing the lungs of the earth, literally. The rainforests are the lungs of the earth. I mean, that's where most of our oxygen comes from. And th th that's, it's such a, a fragile thing that we, we, we know so little about its origins, and it's right there, and it's just these few people that, that, are, that are living there that, that truly uh, understand the, their traditions and they've had them passed down generation to generation. You used the very same terms that Mikhail Gorbachev used when I talked with him. I wanted him to give me some advice that I could pass on to an ecology conference I was going into Brazil to speak at, and he said, tell the Brazilians that the lungs of the earth are the Siberian taiga and the Amazon rainforest, and if the Amazon rainforest is destroyed, one of the lungs will be destroyed. Wow. Now, there are Brazilian laws protecting the rainforest, but, you know, the Brazilian army, the Brazilian police can't protect all of the rainforest, and a lot of the uh, ranchers and lumber companies are just coming in and slicing up that rainforest right and left. I was in southern Brazil with the Guarani tribe, and a Guarani shaman invited me to a very sacred ceremony. And in that ceremony, he passed around some brew that I drank and some stuff that I smoked and other people also. And after a round of, uh, shall we say, six gourds or pipes of psychoactive substances, I was waiting for visions, but they never arrived, and still I could think very, very clearly. And then he wanted me to give a prayer. And in my best Portuguese, which I couldn't have done ordinarily, I said, yes, tell your young people to stop hanging themselves from the trees because there was an epidemic of suicide to protest the destruction of the rainforest. Wow. I said, you get the young people to be active and fight the people who are destroying the rainforest. Go into politics, become lawyers, fight this to save the rainforest. And he said, how did you know our young people were hanging themselves from the trees? I says, well, I'm a member of the Rainforest Action Network in San Francisco, and we keep track of what's happening to the rainforest. It's very important for us. It's important for the world. And shamans like you are way ahead of the game because you know what will happen if the rainforests are destroyed. It's a very, <clears throat> it's a very fascinating idea that there's uh, an intelligence to plants, and that these rainforests are networks of intelligence, mm -hmm. just that we can't quite tap into it, and that somehow or another during these altered states you can, and that that's where the information comes to uh, the the shaman. 
Well, Native Americans from both North and South America use the term in one language or another, all our relations. And all of our relations are not only human beings, but the creatures who walk on four legs, the creatures who crawl on their bellies, the creatures who swim in the seas, the creatures who put their roots into the ground or who stand tall in the forests. All of these are our relations. This is the web of life. This is the ecosystem. And you start to destroy that ecosystem, and human beings are not far along the way in terms of being destroyed themselves. Isn't it a weird thing that we can't recognize that while we're doing it? The human race, for some reason, is doing that and can't understand what it's doing to itself? Doesn't that come back – sorry to interrupt. But doesn't that come back to what you were saying earlier about the placebo effect and the nocebo effect, yeah. which, you know, uh, tricking ourselves, right? We're tricking ourselves not to notice that. We're yeah. tricking ourselves every damn day. We're, you know, telling ourselves we'll never die and so on and so forth. So and so loves me when you know damn well she doesn't or whatever it is. We trick ourselves to make life tolerable, right? Right. So within that context, tricking yourself to heal yourself seems like makes perfect sense. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. It just it's it's weird that we're able to uh, do it's like when you're driving a car and your car has a broken pipe and you see black smoke come out, you're like, "Ah, I got to yeah. get to work." Exactly. You're not really thinking about exactly. it. Exactly. We 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 somehow or another don't feel the impact of the horrible things we do. In psychology, we call this denial. Yeah. And people deny <clears throat> what's right there in front of them because they have other agendas and other preoccupations. This is one reason I was so interested in Rolling Thunder and why we wrote the book Rolling Thunder, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, because he saw all of this 30 years ago. He saw the global warming. He saw the destruction of the rainforests. He saw the pollution of the earth. And who listened to him? His audiences listened to him. Did politicians listen to him? No. Are politicians listening to him now? Go to some of the debates in Congress, and they say that global warming is junk science. Here's massive denial from people who could make a difference. And you take the polls of what the main concerns are of the American people. Concern for the environment is now number five or six down the list. Yeah, that's a weird thing, isn't it? Concern for the actual environment is not at the top of the list. The poisoning of our own earth it's right. not at the top of the list. It's, it's and and could be avoided. We're, we're, human beings are so in, ingenu <clears throat> ingenious, and we we have such amazing abilities to figure out new m methods to extract energy from things. The fact that we're still relying on fossil fuels and we're still burning things and p pumping smoke into the air, although it does make the best sounding engines. It's tough to argue <laughs> with that. Those goddamn hybrids. <laughs> Boy, it's anything sucking the soul away from America, Sarah. It's a Prius, those Toyota Priuses, especially ones with bumper stickers. Something about that makes them extra annoying. Isn't the plural pre-I? <clears throat> should be. <laughs> they should be illegal. You know, you mentioned to all our relations. Yeah. Uh, the most cocoa in the, uh, in the, the hardback of Sex at Dawn, the first, what's it called at the beginning? The preface? No, the, the is it an epigram? Is like you, to my mother and father or oh, whatever. the dedication. The dedication, right. We dedicated it. It said to all our relations. Ah, and I was thinking of this yes. North American, South American Indian thing. But a lot of people thought it was referring to like 
you know, group sex or something, <laughs> like to all, to all our lovers or something. Right, right, right. So we changed it in the in the paperback. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. You should leave that in there. That's actually cool. That's a cool thing to say. Yeah, yeah. You see, this takes us back to the very first question you asked. You think of shamanism, you think of mystical stuff, of talking to spirits. No, shamans are very down to earth. They're concerned with the here and the now. They're concerned with the future. They talk about five, six, seven generations in the future. What is going to happen to the earth in the future? They're very, very practical people. Now, <clears throat> you've done research on, on, on dream telepathy, and you've, uh, you've actually uh, been cited in scientific journals, and you, you've been on, on TV talking about this stuff, including the, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Like, uh, was it back in the 70s? Mm-hmm. Back in the day, the heyday of Johnny Carson. Did, um, did you have a cocktail? Did they have cocktails? Did they smoke cigarettes? They smoked cigarettes, right, on Johnny Carson's show? Did they smoke cigarettes on the set? Not when I was there. No? no. Oh, I Johnny remember. didn't smoke? I thought Johnny like, was seen. constantly puffing away. Yeah. Wasn't Not when I was there, no. Yeah. Um, oh. What happened? Oh, nothing. I was just doing my – I was just doing – a Johnny Carson sound. Oh, oh, that's Ed McMahon. <laughs> that's Ed McMahon. Yeah. Right. Hey-o. I know Johnny Carson show. Oh. Oh. Um, d- what is dream telepathy? Well, this actually goes back to shamanism, because shamans felt that they could communicate with other shamans who were kilometers away, miles away, through mental focusing and through imagination, through imagery. And this tradition has come to us through time, and science, by and large, didn't take it seriously. But a small group of scientists called parapsychologists devised methods to put this to a scientific test and to look into dream telepathy. What we did was to take a soundproof room, put a dreamer in the soundproof room, attach electrodes to the dreamer's head, Look at the electroencephalograph machine, and those little eyes go back and forth, rapid eye movements. We'd wake up the person and ask them what they were dreaming. Now, at the very same time, there was one of our staff members in a distant building and or a distant room who was looking at a picture, usually a famous art print, some of them by Salvador Dali, by the way. Uh-huh. And the staff member was trying to project that image to the dreamer. The dreamer was trying to reach out and see that picture. And then we would transcribe the dreams, and then we'd have a team of dream experts try to match the dreams with the picture after 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 sessions had taken place. And then you can use statistics to find out if the matches happen more often by chance than they would ordinarily. And Much to our surprise, most of the times they did. And we did about a dozen different series, and about nine of these series were above chance levels. So we can't say that we have demonstrated dream telepathy because sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. All we can say is that we've made a case for dream telepathy. But I think the most important thing we did was to take dream telepathy off the list of symptoms of mental illness. Back when we first started out, if people said that they dreamed about the future or dreamed about what a friend was doing, that got a check mark. That's a sign of schizophrenia. That's a sign of delusional thinking. No more. You take a look at the psychiatric indices, that's pretty far down the list. 
So I think we made a signal contribution in terms of letting the psychotherapeutic world, especially the psychiatric world, know that one can make a case that sometimes dream telepathy does indeed occur and that the shamans, once again, were ahead of their time because they did this as part of their regular practice thousands of years ago. The um, original, uh, when, when people uh, with the Western world originally started studying ayahuasca, one of the things that they wanted to do was call harmine, before they had isolated that it was harmine, they wanted to call it telepathine. That, yes. was, the, that was the name they came to it because it, it gave these group sort of uh, telepathic, it gave some sort of an effect that people were able to communicate in, in groups. Well, my old friend Allen Ginsberg, as you know, was the co-author of the Yahe Papers. Yahe is another word for ayahuasca. He and William Burroughs wrote these wonderful letters back and forth, and they experienced telepathy. And Allen Ginsberg went around trying to persuade parapsychologists <clears throat> You know, use the South American herb in your experiments. I took him seriously, but I didn't have a way to get it. Nobody else took him seriously. And that experiment still remains to be done now that ayahuasca is available and now that it is being used in some experiments or another. One could see if it lives up to its nickname, telepathine. Yeah, I, it's uh, it's fascinating that it was already the the scientific nomenclature uh, was already ha- harming for it because of it stuck with telepathine, and that was like the actual scientific yes. word that we use today. That would be a, the, that's a real tricky sort of a slippery slope to have a scientific you know name for something that in, imparts some sort of mystical properties. Mm. Well, that's true. And, of course, to be properly scientific, one often weeds these terms out that are a little too esoteric or a little bit uh, off, the, off the cliff. And so we use words like harmine, harmaline to describe DMT to describe these active ingredients. It's interesting to think about all the different names for what we now call hallucinogenic drugs. You know, they were psychotomimetics there for a while, and then psychedelics, and or some there, there were three or four others. I actually always liked the word fantasticons. <laughs> never, never caught on, but you know, they induce fantasy. Entheogens. Yeah, entheogens. Well, no, entheogen doesn't work because entheogen is finding the God within. Right. And a lot of psychedelics do help people find the God within, but some people take psychedelics for other purposes to have fun, to enhance sex, to explore uh, nature. Don't those things bring the God within out as well? In my opinion, they do. I wouldn't argue with that. Yeah, yeah sure. The, the idea of dream telepathy uh, you know, in, in mainstream science, it's got to be something that's uh, very heavily resisted. Well, it is resisted, but I think that as the years go by, we're getting a much more intelligence discussion. One of my books is called Debating Psychic Experiences, and we have some of the top parapsychologists debating some of the top skeptics in a very civilized, intellectual way. Back and forth, we give the same number of pages to both the advocates and the counter-advocates, and this is a level of discourse that never would have happened 20 years ago. The ultra-skeptics never would have sat down to help write a book 
with the proponents of dream telepathy and other such things. So at least the discourse is now a little more civil and the possibility is now being taken a little more seriously. I don't know what the final outcome is going to be because I'm an agnostic on a lot of these issues, but you know, I think that this is a human experience that needs to be explored, so let's explore it with as many tools that are at our disposal as possible. So do you believe that dream telepathy is something that occurs occasionally but cannot be, um, it can't be reliably reproduced? I wish it could be reliably reproduced because it could be put to practical use then. But no, my belief is it is very unpredictable. Many things in life are unpredictable. I sort of compare it to when people my age have an erection during sex. That's unpredictable. <laughs> I wish I could predict it. Well, a lot of important things in life, like erections for older people, like dream telepathy, like seeing into the future happen, but they're unpredictable. That doesn't mean we shouldn't explore them and study them. What do you believe are the components of, of dream telepathy? Have you isolated it down to uh, a certain firing of the synapses? Do you, I mean, do you have any idea of what, what causes it? We have the equipment to do much more with the brain now than we could. You have to remember that parapsychologists don't have very much money and don't have the tools to... Uh, uh, to utilize a lot of this equipment. But what we did in our studies was very, very simple. The nights that the dream telepathy seemed to be successful were the nights that the geomagnetic fields of the earth were very calm, very few sunspots, very few electrical storms. And so one could hypothesize that there is a field of some sort, a global field, where these barely detectable influences and very subtle means of communication that can sneak through. Also, by and large, if there's an emotional connection between the people who are in contact with each other over a distance, it's more likely to happen than if they're complete strangers. Didn't you have some sort of a, a crazy psychic vision of uh, Kennedy being assassinated? Well, actually, I did. That was during my very first psilocybin experience that I had courtesy of Timothy Leary, who I went to Harvard to visit and who invited me to an experiment with psilocybin. It was a beautiful and glorious experience. It was done during the days when psilocybin was legal. In fact, it was one of his last legal psilocybin sessions. And there was only one downer during that experience, and that was when I had an actual vision during psilocybin with my eyes closed of President Lincoln being shot, and I saw the gun at the base of his profile, and somebody screamed out, the president has been shot. And then Lincoln's face morphed into that of Kennedy, and there was the rifle, except now it was not a pistol, it was a rifle, and somebody was screaming, the president has been shot. I recorded all of that. I had such an incredible experience. I made dozens of copies and sent it to my close friends. And, of course, in several months, the tragedy of Kennedy's death actually happened. And so my vision, whether it was coincidental or precognitive, was on record. Did and I don't consider myself a highly psychic person. 
You don't consider yourself a no. garlic psychic. Um, did, did that freak you out at all? No, nothing freaks me out in this field. It's just a surprise. It sometimes leaves me with a sense of wonder because there's more things going on in the world that we uh, don't take seriously or that take us by surprise. But um, um, the thing that really freaks me out is when people don't, do not take global warming seriously. The thing that freaks me out is when mainstream religions in the world don't give women proper rights to control their own bodies. The thing that freaks me out is when politicians fight each other, leaving the children of the world, especially in the Middle East, with nightmares and post-traumatic stress disorder. Those are practical things that I've written about, and those are the things that freak me out. Yeah, I would think that freaks out anybody with a conscience or anyone who's paying attention to the, the evils of this world. We, we live in very strange times where we have so much information, I mean, more access to information than any generation ever, but yet things more or less are still going along the same course as far as global events, as far as uh, the monopolization of natural resources, as far as you know, using uh, war to, to monopolize those natural resources. It seems to be the same as it's ever been. It's a little better. Back when I first became interested in post-traumatic stress disorder, I've written three books on that topic that your listeners can find on Amazon.com, there were 30 wars going on in the world, most of them civil wars. Now there's 20 wars. That's an improvement. Yeah, I guess. There still are a couple of million people who are displaced and in refugee camps, there still are children who have nightmares every night because they're living in war zones. There still are women being raped and brutalized. But things are a little better than they were 30 years ago. Well, things are a little better than they were thousands of years ago. That's for sure. I mean, I've had this conversation recently with a friend. We were talking about how thousands of years ago, if some people showed up from another land, like they were there to rape and pillage. Now, when people show up, they're a part of the global economy. They're tourists, and you know we allow them in, even if they don't speak the language. And we sell books, tell tell them where the restaurants are, try to speak English to them to get their money. You know, the the world has <laughs> changed drastically in that respect. But yet, you know, there's there's still a lot of re really fucked up things about the way human beings behave. Well, that was my friend Buckminster Fuller's concept of the global village. And Buckminster Fuller had a plan, a logistical plan, to feed everybody in the world if the wars would stop. Now, that vision is still applicable, but it's not going to happen as long as these 20 wars are going on and food is unable to go from areas of plenty to areas of poverty. So the conflicts and the wars, not only in the Middle East, but in Africa and even in our uh, own country in terms of the in terms of the terrorists the homebred terrorists who are victimizing people in the United States as long as that is going on we still aren't going to have the global village that Buckminster Fuller visioned yeah that utopian concept is a really interesting one the the idea of the global village i've always felt like one way to make it happen would be to take these people that are profiting off of rebuilding these countries after we blow them up, you know, like Halliburton, and make it profitable to rebuild ghettos, make it profitable to go to companies and educate kids, make it profitable to, to fix their water systems and, and provide them with sewage and, you know, and, and make sure that they can take care of themselves, bring food and medicine. It seems like there's money involved in that. It seems like it's just a matter of 
transferring the energy to instead of uh, only doing it to comp- to countries where we blow them up let's do it to countries that need it like make it profitable for countries like or companies like Halliburton to make money by building up third world countries Halliburton made over 2 billion dollars from the Iraq war and a lot of that was lost during graft and corruption now what has Halliburton done to improve the infrastructure in the United States? Our country is literally falling apart, especially in terms of transportation, especially in terms of uh, cleaning up the pollution in our country. Dwight Eisenhower was actually the last president that paid attention to the infrastructure with his interstate highway system. Yeah. Obama is trying to do something for the infrastructure right now, but he's not having much success in getting that through Congress. You are absolutely right. If some subsidy could be given to big companies to build up the infrastructure in the low-income parts of our country, to clean up the polluted streams and waters and oceans and rivers, that would be money well spent. Yeah, just think about what we're doing with corn. Hmm. You know, the amount of money and uh, the amount of emphasis they put on, on, on farmers growing corn and the, the subsidies that are involved in that. It's pretty staggering. And that's the reason why there's so much corn syrup and corn this and corn that and corn's fucking terrible for you it for the most is part. and that's why people are getting obese because if they're taking all of the sweetening from the corn syrup and look at all the subsidies that are going to corn there are many natural sweeteners that do not add weight some of them come from china some of them actually can come to the united states why don't we have more money going into those natural sweeteners rather than the sweeteners like aspartame, for example, that Donald Rumsfeld made money off, and which is worse for you than the sugar in, in soft drinks. Supposedly, yeah. I, I've never heard anybody really get fucked up from aspartame, but I've read terrible things about potential side effects. Yes. But it's so delicious in a Diet Coke. Exactly. That's where it's problematic. Um, I like stevia. Stevia is good stuff. Stevia is good stuff. Yes, yeah. I'll go along with that. Right. Although I have read recently some negative things on stevia, but someone said that that's propaganda. I haven't looked into it. Enough. Well, of course, because the competitors are going to spread nasty things about something that's healthy. Yeah, mm. yeah. The the idea that someone can come along and have some natural sweetener that doesn't put any calories into. Uh, into your food and is actually healthy. It's very dangerous for the, for the established elite. I'm going to go back to Rolling Thunder because in our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, there's a long interview with him about how he did not pay attention to taking sugar into his body and how he got diabetes. Ah. Uh, yeah, and he goes on a long harangue trying to urge people to stay away from sugary drinks, sugary treats, or they'll end up getting diabetes like he did. And... His diabetes was so bad that Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead and I had to fly to his home in Nevada and get him into an airplane, bring him back to Mickey Hart's doctor in the San Francisco area who had to amputate his leg to save his life from diabetes. And this is all from just eating sugar? Or is that there's a is it there's some sort of a does he have a natural inclination to Oh that? yes, you know, diabetes is something that it's ordinary for people to get as they reach a certain age, but there was a genetic proclivity along with that. 
But he learned his lesson, and toward the end of his life, he tried to warn people about eating more healthy food with less sugar. By the way, Stan, while you're talking about uh, Rolling Thunder's genetics, you might mention your co-author of the book. The co-author of our book is Sidney and Morningstar, and Sidney and Morningstar is the grandson of Rolling Thunder, and he and I got together and we interviewed two dozen people who knew Rolling Thunder and told their stories in the book that we called The Voice of Rolling Thunder because Mickey Hart, the drummer of the Grateful Dead, had recorded several dozen speeches of Rolling Thunder over the years, and we got access to those tapes, and so we actually have the first original speeches laced through the book, and so we actually do have the voice of Rolling Thunder in the book. Wow. Is, there's no audio book, though, is there? Oh, we are hoping there will be an audio Yeah, audible.com. Let's get on that. Get that audible. Yes. Yeah, you've got the original tapes there. That's fantastic. That's amazing. Um, you you were very fortunate enough to see the uh, psychedelic hysteria of the '60s yes. and, and see it manifested in in law in the in, was it 1970 the sweeping yes. sc- Schedule One yes. psychedelic act that was passed. What what the impact on culture? I've I've always found it was it was one of the most fascinating eras for uh, this country and even humanity that we can study the 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 dis- the distance between the '50s and the '60s. Like, there's never been a time that we could ever look at where there's been such a gigantic radical change mm. that you could really attribute a big part of it to psychedelics in this country. Yes, and also psychedelics, of course, are being put down by the political establishment today. But without the psychedelics, you wouldn't have had the uh, smart inventors who are responsible for the Internet, for the cell phone, for the smartphone – for computers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For DNA replication. I met uh, Carrie Mullis a couple weeks ago at TED. He won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for coming up with the, the DNA. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. PCR. I know Carrie Mullis, and he gives due credit to his work with LSD. Exactly. I met Francis Crick, and he gives credit for his LSD sessions for the double helix. So there are many inventions outside of the electronics that made changes, much less the difference in style, the difference in music, the difference in sexual behavior. And historians, when they write about that area, do not really give enough credit to what the psychedelics did and the role that they played. No, they don't, do they? It's a, it's a weird thing. It's a, they, they try to avoid it. They try to avoid it because they're afraid it will get censored. And... Often it does get censored. I know of cases where journalists have written about the role of LSD and other psychedelics and social change, and their editors have uh, whited that out of the article and have put the article in without due credit to LSD. Now, you don't get this in all the alternative press, and you certainly don't get this in shows such as yours, which are very freewheeling and don't have censorship involved with them. But, of course, I saw all of this firsthand. I knew Albert Hoffman. He was a very dear friend of mine. He should have won the Nobel Prize, and he would have if LSD had been allowed to take its actual course and help people in psychotherapy and creativity and dying a dignified death. But LSD fell into the wrong hands. It was victimized by the government, and poor Albert Hoffman was very 
grieved by this. He wasn't grieved for not getting enough honor himself, but he had a tool here that could be very, very helpful to people. And then you had the extremists like my old friend Timothy Leary, who I liked very much but who I disagreed with, going to one extreme and saying LSD for all, and then the government, on the other hand, saying LSD for nobody. It's a dangerous thing, and people like Richard Nixon saying Timothy Leary is public enemy number one, the most dangerous man in America. And where was the middle ground? People like Gene Houston, Robert Masters, Sidney Cohen, Oscar Yandiger, some of the pioneers who I knew very well of that era, their work got completely eclipsed, and they were cut off from legitimate supplies of LSD. The work with uh, LSD, uh, the work that uh, Francis Crick did with the double helix DNA, uh, that's very controversial, isn't it? Wasn't that on his deathbed that he said that he, uh, he'd come to these conclusions? He was very old. This is actually after I met him when he talked about... Uh, LSD, and of course we don't know the role that that actually played in something as complicated as the double helix. Remember that his partner Watson deserves equal credit. We never know how much credit to give to something like that, and it's a source. It's a source. A creative person will try many things. Um, I interviewed Frank Zappa for an article I wrote about the influence of psychedelics on art and music. And he says, I don't know what role psychedelics played in my music. An artist, a musician, will go to many sources and will pull from life experiences from many sources. And so, no, you never know exactly. All we can say, it didn't seem to do him any harm. Any, any harm. Yeah. Francis Crick, uh, did he tell you himself that he had No, had no, done no. This was after LSD? I met him. After we, he met him. Yeah, we had a very Michio- delightful conversation, but this was years after I met him that he made the statement about LSD. Because uh, Michio Kaku wouldn't admit that. I, I had a conversation with him on the Opie and Anthony show, and I, I asked him about Francis Crick, and he completely poo-pooed it. He said it's nonsense and that mm. he's of the belief that psychedelics are bad for the brain and give you brain damage. Really kind of a disappointing point of view when I when I talked to him because I'd, I'd recognized right away that he had never had any experiences with them himself. It was just purely a, a, right. a standard sort of academic and uh, he didn't believe it at all. He said that it was not true. In the newspaper this morning, there was a statistic that uh, within the last 12 months, 170,000 people have died from prescription drugs. Okay, how many people have died in the last 12 months from marijuana? How many people have died in the last 12 months from an overdose of LSD? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Zero. Well, it's it's also when you are a mainstream academic, like a guy like Michio Kaku, you almost have to talk bad about marijuana right. and illegal drugs, and you almost have to ignore the dangers of prescription drugs. It's really not something that you have. Uh, it, there's 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 no benefit in in his career toward, for him taking a controversial stand. Yeah, but you know that that's like Halliburton. That's mm-hmm. like some executive at Halliburton. Yeah. You know, it's like you can stand up and say the truth, especially these days as you and I were talking about the other day, you know, with the internet having changed the whole communication and the gatekeepers getting edged out of the picture. I mean, Andrew Weil, who's a mutual friend of Stanley and and me, 
you know who I'm talking about? A medical doctor. Uh, he was the on, guy with the white beard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's on the cover of Time magazine yeah. and all this, right? His first three or four books are all about consciousness. And he very openly talks about his use of mushrooms and ayahuasca and, you know, he's ecstasy and he's done all these things and he talks about his experience. He ta- And he's very balanced. The dude's Harvard Med School, you know, residency at Mass General, National Institute of Health, like top, top, top. And I interviewed him a few months ago and it's still he's like and I said to him, I really admire the fact that you've never run away from that. Mm. You never said, oh, I was young and stupid. Like, no, the dude is very courageous about it. And hey, his career is doing fine. Terrence McKenna had a great quote about psychedelics that he said that oftentimes people are doing the work for the man. And that you're worried about the man, and in worrying about the man, you're actually doing the work of the man himself. Right. You know, being that you're censoring yourself, and that you really yeah. you don't have to censor yourself nearly as much. You know, I I'm in a weird field. I'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian, but I'm also a sports commentator. I do the commentary for the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and it's on Fox TV, and it's on. You know, the FX, it's on pay-per-view, and it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar business. But I'm very open about psychedelics, and I'm very open about the positive aspects of them that I've experienced myself. And I've, I've been very fortunate that I've had other jobs, like stand-up comedy to always fall back on, that I never needed to worry right. about censoring myself, and I never th- so I never thought about it. But I've experienced a, a lot of frustration from various people, from agents and producers and executives, where they're like, what are you doing? Like, what are really? you talking Like, thinking that this is going to hurt the big picture, this is going to hurt the package, this is going to hurt the things that I'm connected to. It right. never has. Right. It never has. You never got pressure from Fox or anybody? No, yeah, no. About- well, you know what? Here's the thing. Debate me. Sit right. down. Sit, sit down with me, and let's right. discuss what, what is right. what is the real issue that that's a problem here. Is it illegality? Well, do you understand the roots of the illegality? Because right. it's not based on science. Right. It's based on hysteria. It's based on worry. It's based on fear. Racism. Racism. But sure, when you talk about marijuana, marijuana yeah. uh, propaganda, and and really, uh, it was based on uh, the the suppression of hemp as a commodity. Really, didn't even have anything to do with marijuana as a psychoactive drug. Right. Right. So anybody who wants to sit down and debate with me, you're just going to reinforce my point I've, sure. I've talked about this and i've read too much about this to 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 step back it's it seems to me um and you would be able to speak on this because you've seen this happen you were there from the 50s to the 60s that psychedelics the change that psychedelics can impart in human beings although i think anything can be abused i mean i think any the humans have a a propensity to uh, overindulge in almost any sort of behavior positive or negative people get addicted to love i mean people can get obsessed with relationships that could all uh, you know under the control of someone with discipline or with uh, you know someone who has a, a grip on reality could be a great thing we we have this ability to fuck anything out, but overall, I think psychedelics have an incredibly positive uh, effect on on people. Overall, you know, if you look at the broad spectrum of users and talk about, I mean, Johns Hopkins had a, a, a recent uh, paper that they they published about the long term effects of psilocybin use in in um, these people that took it, where it enhanced their personality. Twenty years later, one mushroom trip. Right. Yes. This is one reason why I'm not glad that I am in mainstream academia. I don't have to worry about these things. I teach at Saybrook University, 
which is very open-minded, which allows people to do their dissertations on ayahuasca, on LSD, even on telepathy, and we're completely accredited. Prehistoric sexuality. Yes. Chris, Chris <laughs> Ryan is one of our most distinguished graduates, and he wrote his dissertation on sexuality. And Saybrook University is where? where is in, that? San Francisco, in San Francisco, but it's an online university. People from all over the world can get an accredited master's or doctor's degree by doing work through their computer, through the Internet, through Skype, and have person-to-person conversations with me and other faculty members. God bless San Francisco. You know, San Francisco is is the freak capital of this country. Always yeah. will be. Well, it's kind of, you know, and it gets back to your point about the the cultural effect of psychedelics in the '60s, right? It's yeah. San Francisco is the place that's still vibrating a little bit from yes. that. It's still yeah. ringing. It's, it's yeah. the gong still <laughs> exactly. has the. The, I, I lived in San Francisco from the time where I was 11 till I was 13, mm. uh, or actually, excuse me, 7 to 11. Um, and uh, it was a, a fascinating time because it was uh, when the Vietnam War was ending. And, uh, you know, San Francisco was unlike any other place in the country. I didn't know it at the time, of course, because I was only seven years old. But we went from New Jersey, which was this barbaric shithole, to San Francisco, <laughs> and then went from San Francisco to Florida, which was another barbaric shithole. Oh, man. So it was, it was really interesting. I didn't know what the word nigger meant until I was 11 years old. I didn't, I, I never heard it. I never heard it in San Francisco. Mm. I mean, the people don't believe that, but right. there was, I didn't experience racism. I, I went to school with black kids, Asian kids. Everybody was just a kid. Oh, this is Bobby. His fam- family's from Korea. This right. is Mike. His family's black. There was no, there was no uh, weirdness to it until I went to Florida. Oh, that's a and lot then, of weirdness. Yeah. yeah, my mother didn't believe me. I, I, I asked. I said to my mother, I said, I said, Mom, uh, what does nigger mean? And she, she's like, You know what it means. And I go, No, I don't know what it means. Like, tell you know, my mother grew up in New Jersey. She probably heard it all the time. But when we lived in Florida, it was the first time that I heard it in school, and I had to come to her. And then she's like, It's a derogatory term for black people. And I was like, What? I was so shocked because from age seven to eleven, I grew up in this really open-minded, intelligent environment. You know, we, mm. we lived near uh, Lombard Street. We were, like, in the heart of San Francisco. Mm. Gay neighbors. Like, gay to me was like, oh, that guy's gay. This guy's tall. You know, it was like, yeah. it was just a part of life. San Francisco is a, just an amazing, amazing spot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love San Francisco. Yeah. I You know, I want to hear more about your life. Every time I come on here, we're talking about me. In this case, we're talking about Stanley, which definitely is very interesting. But I got to get you on my podcast, dude. Man. We got plenty of time. I, I, I want to hear it. your more story. More than happy. Yeah, my my story is a weird one. It's, it's very <laughs> yeah, strange. Yeah, but um, the one of the coolest things about the story is uh, this: the podcast, the ability to have a guy like you on, have yeah. a, a conversation for hours at a time. What was it like? Did you were you living in San Francisco during the the sixties? No, I was doing the dream telepathy research in New York City at Maimonides <sighs> Medical Center during the nineteen sixties, but. Once I met Mickey Hart, I would take a trip to San Francisco a couple of times a year and stay at his ranch. And that is where I met Rolling Thunder, as well as other members of the Grateful Dead and other members of the rock community. And I got a tour of Haight-Ashbury, had friends in Haight-Ashbury. So every time I came to San Francisco, I got myself immersed in the hippie culture, the psychedelic culture, learned a lot, came back to New York City, put that knowledge to use in the research that we were doing. And then we actually ran out of money. I couldn't do the dream telepathy research anymore, 
But I got an offer to teach at Saybrook University, and that's when I moved to San Francisco in the, uh, in the early 1970s. So you moved there right after everything became illegal. <laughs> yes, that is correct. What was the effect on San Francisco, the, uh, the, the change from... Well, the effect was sort of negative. I saw a lot of people who had been dabbling with psychedelics, and then they switched to cocaine. Some of them switched to heroin. And so the illegality had some very negative effects upon a lot of young people. Again, not to say that they shouldn't have the responsibility. It was their decision to turn to these harder drugs. But uh, the beautiful summer of love didn't last very long. They finally screw up everything. You know, um, it's one of the... Did you know Terrence McKenna at all? Yes, I did. One of the other things that he uh, said that I found really fascinating was that what we really learned um, from the the sweeping psychedelic uh, act of 1970 when they just made everything illegal was how easy it was, at least at the time, to throw water on this revolution. Mm. That this, this revolution from... I always use Buddy Holly and Jimi Hendrix as an example. I'm like, Buddy Holly was like a rebel in the 50s, you know? Pegasus, mm-hmm. Pegasus, now you know why I feel blue. It's like so calm. And then you go from that to Voodoo Child, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, or early Beatles to late Beatles. Yeah, very good. I want to hold your hand to yeah. I am the walrus, Kukukachu. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I have a daughter. One of my daughters is 16, and she's. Um, She's really into the Beatles. Oh, like I pity huge. her boyfriends. Oh, <laughs> why is that? <laughs> Time to meet Dad. Oh, oh I'm, man. I'm nice. I'm easy. <laughs> I'm easy. I, I, my, I, you know, I, I, my feeling is boys like girls and girls like boys. Right. And if you're nice to them, but dads not don't like boys. <laughs> I don't mind them. I don't. I really don't. I just. I don't have an attitude that there's something wrong with two kids making out or good, doing yeah. whatever they do. I, yeah, just, good, I don't think good. there's anything wrong with it. I liked it, and I remember when I was 16, my girlfriend liked it. It's like it's normal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's it's certainly awkward and strange, but yeah. I'm not a, a scary dad to me at all. That's I'm good. very friendly. But um, she's uh, she's uh, an interesting kid, and she's uh, in in love with the Beatles. Hmm. And uh, one of the things that her and I have been talking about was the difference between the Beatles' early stuff and then, like, the White Album, like, what right. this, this radical transformation, yeah. and that this came about, a lot of it, because of their fascination with altered states of consciousness. And then Eastern religions, yeah. Yeah, which came directly out of that. Yeah, the real yeah. problem with the Beatles, though, is highlighted by my good friend Bill Burr, and that's fucking Yoko Ono. How did that... <laughs> she is like the one... Exi- like, if you wanted to say, maybe acid is bad for you. What the <laughs> fuck, John? Like, what were you thinking, man? Like, I, was, ha- I was just talking to my mom about this, and I didn't know that like everyone hated Yoko, even at the time. Like, I, I always thought everyone liked Yoko, you know, back then. But no, everyone hated her but, back but then. But maybe that's the key to it. Because he was such an original thinker. The fact that everyone was saying, John, you're wrong, just makes him say, fuck you all. You want to see right. something cool? Pull up the uh, the video with Bill Burr on Yoko Ono. Okay, I'm going to bring you uh, my friend uh, Bill Burr. He was on hilarious. Tuesday. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. One of the funniest guys in the world. A really, really hilarious comedian. But he was also a huge Beatles fan and a, a huge Chuck Berry 
fan. And one time, John Lennon got to play with Chuck Berry on television. Mm. And John mm. Lennon brought Yoko Ono with him to play as well. And oh. she sabotaged the entire performance. She started, like, <laughs> screaming into the mic. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. And Bill Burr goes absolutely crazy about this and highlights it. And it's, it's, oh, it's one of my favorite videos on, on the internet when it comes to uh, music. And here, I'll, we'll play it for you right greatest, now. Um, as much as people talk about the Beatles and how great their music is, was, whatever you want to say, I totally agree with them. I think they're the greatest band of all time. But I have to be honest with you. John Lennon and Paul McCartney redefined Pussy Whipped. <laughs> you have to watch this fucking video. It's John Lennon is singing with Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry is probably one of the main reasons why John Lennon, Lennon ever picked up a guitar. So now he's on TV. He gets to play with his idol. They're playing uh, Chuck Berry's hit Memphis. Okay, John Lennon's got Yoko in his fucking band. Look at her. They're in the middle of singing this song on television. And they're killing it. It's going great. Yoko's playing some stupid fucking drum. <laughs> and even though she has no fucking talent whatsoever, he's putting her in the fucking band. <laughs> just so she'll shut the fuck up and stop nagging her. She's too much of a fucking pussy to tell her that she has no talent. All right? The only reason why you're here, Yoko, is because you're sucking my dick. <laughs> All right? No, you can't play the bongos. <laughs> but anyway, she's up there playing the bongos, right? So John Lennon, Chuck Berry, two of the greats of all time, harmonizing, singing this hit from the 1950s. That's what this moment's about. And Yoko, in the middle of it, can't handle that she's not getting any shine. She takes the fucking microphone out of the stand, starts playing the bongo. And as they're singing, you know, go, go, Johnny, go, whatever. She picks up the mic and I swear to God goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some fucking crazy shit. <laughs> and you see Chuck Berry's eyes open as wide as they are. And, and it's that, it's that <laughs> fucking look. <laughs> Dude, you ever have like a buddy of yours and he's 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 dating some fucking psycho, but he's in love with her, so you can't fucking say anything, and you're just sitting there waiting for the fucking lightning bolt to hit your friend in the head where he finally realizes that he's dating a psycho cunt. Chuck Berry had that look on his face. Dude, I'm not even joking. I'm not even exaggerating. Yeah, yeah. That's what the fuck she did. And Chuck Berry's like, what the fuck? And it's kind of like, John, that's your woman. Get her in line, and John Lennon does not even fucking—he doesn't even blink. He just—he just keeps playing, and then she does it again later on in that song. And then you look at all the other musicians, and they, they just keep playing the song like Yoko isn't even fucking there. And uh, I actually get infuriated when I watch this video—the fact that John didn't just stop playing in that moment, and what he should have done was dressed her down. Right there. It's like, fine, you want to have a fucking moment? This is your moment. If you ever fucking do that again, I will slap you so fucking hard in the head, your eyes are going to look like mine. Do you understand me? You play that fucking bongo, and you shut your face. You look like that bitch who crawled out of the fucking well and ring. You understand me? I don't even know why I'm fucking you. I could be fucking anybody. You can't play the pong bongos. You can't sing. Shut your fucking face. And then he just walks back up to the mic and just counts the band back in. Right? Isn't that what the fuck you should have done? <laughs> okay, it's good. Uh, there's no perfect people. That's what it is. We, we have to accept that all of our idols are flawed. And even the great John Lennon, the beautiful musician and powerful cultural figure as he was, had terrible taste in women. 
Well, I happen to like Yoko Ono's art. How dare you? Yes. They <laughs> How dare you, sir? They had an exhibit of hers at MOMA, and I thought it was extremely original and very provocative. Now, I don't like what she did with the Chuck Berry-John Lennon duet, <laughs> but she was not completely without talent. <laughs> I went to see the Yoko Ono art exhibit when I lived in Boston, uh, and one of the things that she had was a block of wood with nails in it, and a bag of nails and a and a hammer, and she encouraged people to participate in her art, and that's what she wanted to do. When you walk by, just pick up a nail and and whack it in, and that was art. And what I, I had the joke was, if she really wanted to encourage people to participate, she should take the nails and. Put them in her forehead, and there'd be a fucking line around the block. It would be like that scene from Airplane with the nun with the guitar and boxing gloves. Everybody would be lining up. Yeah. What did it take? A slam and one of those dumb nails. But I should also mention that uh, I had the great fortune of hearing the Beatles at their Shea Stadium concert. I should say I saw the Beatles because you couldn't hear a word they were saying. There was so much screaming from their fans. Oh, wow. And so I... Also, used the Beatles in some of my articles about the influence of psychedelics on art and music, and you're absolutely right. They did make a switch thanks to psychedelics, their work with the Maharishi, the influence of Eastern religions, George Harrison taking up the sitar. You know, like musicians, they change, they evolve sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But I think in the Beatles' case, they... We're venturing into new and unexplored territory. They were true artists. You know, they were really expanding and they weren't worried about, you know, sticking to their sound. You know, whether it's their ACDC sort of riffs that they're like, you know, mm -hmm. the signature riffs. That, right. ACDCs, I love ACDC, but damn, you can hear an ACDC yeah. song a mile away. Once you hear it, you know it's an ACDC song. The Beatles really, uh, really went out there. They took a lot of like really crazy chances with some of their stuff. Yes, they did. And... I met Rolling Thunder through Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead because Rolling Thunder's son was living in the Haight-Ashbury and he met some of the Grateful Dead and when his father, Rolling Thunder, came to town, he made the connection. This is all told about in our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, <laughs> and that is how Rolling Thunder got to meet Bob Dylan and participated in the Rolling Thunder Review and so there's a lot of rock and roll stuff that's part of the Rolling Thunder legend. Yesterday in the car, Stanley and I were talking about some of the musicians he's known over the years. And he mentioned that Hendrix was opening for the Monkees. Oh. Whoa. You are talking about getting blown off Jeez. the stage. <laughs> I was able to take my stepchildren to hear the Monkees because they love the Monkees. And Jimi Hendrix opened for the Monkees. And I told them. He is going to be a major rock and roll star. Never forget that name. And they didn't. And a few years later, the monkeys were forgotten, and Jimi Hendrix was a classic. Poor monkeys. Yeah. They didn't do so badly. They each went on to their own career. They, you know, found their place. They had a TV yeah, show you know, for a while. No big deal. I mean, they were fine. They were cute. I liked the monkeys when yeah. I was a little kid. Weren't they like one of the first uh, fake bands? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. that whole thing. They were like they were like the first boy band, really, right. essentially the manufactured boy band. Exactly. Now, when you see like the the you know back in the day where it was the Beatles and you know and Elvis and they, that was the teeny bopper thing, and now you see like Justin Bieber, isn't that sort of a sign of the times? 
Hmm. You know, that that's the, the teeny bopper now. It's like the, the teeny bopper is an 18-year-old that looks like a 12-year-old. Girl. Girl. Yeah. yeah. Girl. He looks <laughs> yeah. Like, and he sings like a girl. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very odd. Like, we're, we're in this really strange time of almost like a suspended adolescence, suspended childhood. Like, they want to contain it and carry it. And he's sort of, yeah. a, that's, that's the ideal spokesperson for that. And I wonder, I don't know enough about the history of fashion and so on to know whether this is true or not. But it seems like since the, what, late 80s, 90s somewhere, we started, like, circling in terms of fashion, right? Like, disco came back, mm-hmm. you know, and bell Very bottoms briefly. came back. Bell bottoms barely. They tried to come back. They but try, they, yeah. But it seems, doesn't it sort of feels like, like we've come to the end of... Of the line in some way. So now they're trying to circle around and redo stuff. Oh, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, what's old today is new tomorrow. Huh. And this is just part of the fashion cycle. It's been happening for centuries. Yeah. I think that what's most interesting and even a little bit dangerous is the prolonging of adolescence with adults. Right. Adults who are acting like they're teenagers. I don't have any problem with Justin Bieber or any of the teeny bopper favorites. You know, that's their thing and they're welcome to do it. But when adults start to act like teenagers and start acting out and start to behave irresponsibly, I think this is where people really have to grow up, especially with all of the crises in the country and the crises in the world. Like what do you – in what example do you use like adults acting like teenagers? I think that there is a tendency – for some adults to look at their kids as pals and say, oh, my daughter is my best friend. I'm her best friend. Well, this is nonsense. You're the mother. You're not the best friend of your daughter. You lay down the rules. You give instructions. You teach your daughter how to become an adult. You teach moral codes. You teach rules. You teach regulations. You serve as a role model. What's this best friend crap all about? You can't be both. <clears throat> you can't be a best friend as well as a, a role model, someone who lays down the law. I would not say never. All that I can say is that role confusion is not really part of parenting. What about when you see like a man in his 30s and he's sagging his pants? Have you witnessed that? Yes, I have. How about that? Is that the weirdest thing ever? That I mean, is pretty weird. You've seen some shit in your day. I have. This, this sagging pants thing really makes me worry about the future of humanity. Grown men... <laughs> Grown men that are probably going to have babies of their own. See, there's Justin. Nothing wrong with this poor little Yeah, girl. except for his stupid Sa- baggy pants, he, well, hammer he's pants. Sagging. He's sagging. Don't you understand that? that? Burn, that's sagging. Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah, they all sag. Aren't they like Thai fishing oh, I would have a problem with Justin Bieber having oh, saggy stuff. pants. I have trouble with grown men having saggy pants yeah. trying to be teenagers. What the fuck is that about? I, I know a dude. He's, I love him to death. But when he was like 39, he started sagging his pants. <laughs> It's like, come on, son. And that's just when you need something to hold your balls up anyway. Yeah, that's when they start going. Maybe that's what it is. He just didn't want the tickle from the the, the pants hitting the base of his balls. As his balls dropped, he tried to compensate. It's like a comb over with his pants. Exactly. Comb over. We're we're silly. And I think uh, there's there's a a prolonged silliness uh, from the 70s to today. 
But I think that what's going on today over the last decade or so is I think that even though there's, there's still plenty of silliness like Justin Bieber, and again, I have nothing against Justin. He's a child, and he makes music for other children. And, you know, who knows? Maybe one day from now we'll look back and say, well, this is when Justin Bieber was a child. Now, look, he's this brilliant adult yeah. musician making this really like Stevie cool Stevie Wonder. Shit. Well, sure. this is, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. what happened to, happened to Ricky Martin. He was yeah. part of Menudo, this boys band from Puerto Rico. Who would have guessed that he would become a Broadway star and a brilliant Broadway star? Is he is he on Broadway now? Yes, he is in Les Miserables. He is in Evita. And I saw him in Las Vegas, one of the best acts I've ever seen in Las Vegas. He's a marvelous musician. He's gotten rave reviews for his role in Evita, where he plays Che Guevara, of all people. Stanley Krippner, Ricky Martin fan. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there it is. Now you know. He's full of surprises. Are you living La Vida Loca? I just want to know. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Great Upside, song. inside out. Yeah. Living la vida loca. <laughs> yeah. No, he's a talented guy. Nothing wrong with that. You know, and uh, and finally out of the closet, too. I think that's uh, yeah. another uh, another beautiful thing that's Well, he's today. to be commended for that. Yes. And Lady Gaga, who I also like. She has born a that, Yeah, born that way. That probably saved the life of dozens of gay and lesbian kids. Yeah, that's a sad, sad, sad thing about this world is that that's still an issue, you know, and that while this gay marriage debate is going on, you know, who knows what kind of creepy shit's getting passed through Congress. It's not even getting public recognition. Everybody's paying attention to right. whether or not people should have the right to do whatever they want sexually with someone who also wants to do it with them. It's, it's a strange thing that <clears throat> I always sort of uh, say it's like it's almost like a cultural beach ball. You know, if you're in a concert and someone throws a beach ball and it goes up and comes down, it's like, you know, it's like nothing ever fucking happens. It just kind of gets tossed around. Like, what do you think about gay marriage? You know, it's just like, oh, no, what a affirmative action. Uh, nothing ever gets fixed. But they just get sort of tossed around back and forth whenever this. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go back to shamanism again because in shamanic traditions around the world, what we would call gay and lesbian people were given a great deal of honor. Many of them became dancers, singers, even shamans. And Native Americans, not 100%, but most Native Americans said, look, here's somebody who acts like a woman, likes members of uh, his own gender or her own gender, depending on which one you're talking about. The Great Spirit must have devoted some very special time to making them that way. So we have to give them special honor and respect them. Now, the Europeans came in, oh, that's terrible, let's get the Inquisition on them, and they killed what we would call gays and lesbians, they killed shamans, they killed them sometimes very, very brutally, and at the same time, the Europeans gave much less power to women than the Native Americans did. Native Americans gave a lot of power to women in their governing councils, in their decision-making, and in their families. And look Way where it got them. Yeah. Nowhere. America came over, the Europeans came mm -hmm. over, and stormed the place because chicks were running everything. Yeah. And so that was like, the greatest genocide in history. Probably yeah. <clears throat> 10 million Native Americans died in North America, 10 million died in South America, mainly through disease. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, the weirdest... <clears throat> story if you, if you stop and think about what, how quickly it changed here in America, in, in, this, yes. in, in North America, from the time that Columbus and, you know, from the, the 1400s to, you know, the 1900s or whatever to today. I mean, it's, it's an insane episode of genocide. 
<clears throat> and it didn't have to be that way. There's pretty good evidence that the Chinese came to the Pacific coast and even further down in maybe the early 1400s, maybe earlier, and they were there to learn from the people, to take samples back to China. They didn't invade. They didn't say this is going to be part of China. We're going to make these people into good Buddhists. They respected what they did, and they got their information, and they sailed back to China. No, the Europeans were there to bring people to the true religion. They were there to trade, to get gold, to get Mar to get furs, to enrich the old world at the expense of the new world. It is a, an amazing time, though. If you, look, if you looked at a timeline, like an animated timeline of the world, and then showed North America, and showed North America from the arrival of the first Europeans, and then whoom, this massive change that takes place over this continent over the course of the next several hundred years. Gigantic cities just erupt, the biggest cities the world has ever known. Military complex builds up. Nuclear bombs start getting developed. You know, the internet, airplanes, all this shit happens in this one continent. I mean, yeah. this, this one continent is essentially the last big continent to get established by human beings becomes the craziest motherfucker of, of all. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's really weird. If you look at it from a historical timeline, the massive amount of impact that these immigrants have had coming over from Europe and other parts of the world to this Horses. one spot. Yeah. Yeah. And it yeah. could have happened a different way. What we call Mexico City, what they called uh, Teotihuacan or Tenochtitlan in Mexico, that was a bigger city than London, and the sewers were clean. Yeah. The Spaniards came here. They couldn't believe how clean the city was. And then, of course, they ruined it all. How'd they ruin it? They ruined it all because they wanted gold, and they took The Montez Spaniards ruined it. Yeah, the Spaniards ruined it. And they took Montezuma. They... Uh, tortured him, they killed him, even though he filled a room full of gold with them. The same thing <coughs> happened in Peru with Pizarro and Atahualpa. Here there were these great empires with magnificent cities, magnificent libraries. The Mayan libraries were all burned to pieces. We don't know the Mayan wisdom because the priests said all of that is pagan stuff. We have to get rid of it. So there was a very, very different mentality that, as you say, completely changed things, and then things had to start all over again and took a much different route. Well, the um, the Aztecs did some fucking crazy shit themselves. They I mean, did. They did human help. sacrifice, but at the same time, the Inquisition in Spain and in Germany and in parts of France and Italy were also killing people by burning them at the stake. I don't let the Aztecs off for the human sacrifice, but, you know, let's be fair. Let's look what happened at the other part of the world. Yeah, didn't they sacrifice, like, I think over the course of, like, I th I'm going to look it up. I think over the course of four days, they sacrificed some insane number of, yeah, 80,000 people. Um, the uh, the Pyramid of, T I don't know how to say of this. Of Teotihuacan. <clears throat> after they, um, in 1487, after the construction of it, they sacrificed all the prisoners that they used to, to make it. 80,000 people. Oh, and one reason that they did all the sacrifices is they thought that the gods were angry at them by bringing in the Spaniards and bringing in all of the diseases that started to kill people off. Mm -hmm. So like I say, no, I'm not letting the Aztecs off for the sacrifices. That was a flaw in their civilization and a very important flaw. But they did create clean and beautiful cities. 
and they did have a form of government that worked, and, and they the, did beautiful artwork. And the streets, you mentioned the sewage. Yes. They, they had sewer systems, and they also had uh, the streets lit at night, if I remember yes, correctly. Yes, they had the three seats lit at night. And Were they gas lamps or something like that? I don't know. Do you know? They weren't gas lamps, no, for sure. No, Probably torches. Ordinary torches. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But it was built, it's, it was an island in the middle of a big lake, right? Yes. And it only had like one or two causeways, so it was yes. perfectly defendable. Wow. But they invited Cortez and his guys in. It was such a mess. And one of the theories – you might know more about this than I do, but um, the Vikings came down to North America oh, yeah. much earlier, like yeah. the 10th century or something. And one of the theories was that they had gotten as far south as Mexico because there was a myth that the, there was a white god that came from the east and said he'd return someday. And so when they found – when the Spanish showed up, they were like, ah, you know, it's the second coming. Well, so. the Vikings, of course, are now memorialized by the current TV series, which is not not bad, by the way. It's very Is it funny. really? And what, did it just start? That Vikings? Yeah, it started, started, yeah. Right. <clears throat> it's good? Yeah. And the Vikings had a very, very important impact on not only Europe, but yes, they came and visited North America. They didn't kill off Native American Indians. They collaborated with them. They learned from them. They had their colonies, then things got a little too chilly and cold and uncomfortable, so they sailed back. But they did not leave the legacy of destruction and disease that the English and the Spaniards and the Portuguese did much later on. And one interesting thing about the white god legend is that when Cortez came, he came at just the right time. The legend was the 30th day of the 30th month the white god will come. And so every time in that cycle that the white god was supposed to come, they had scouts on the Gulf of Mexico. Believe it or not, Cortez came just when the prediction was there, and they welcomed him with open arms. I think it was one of the cruelest coincidences in the history of humankind <laughs> that he came at just the right time, so he was welcomed. Do you think that's a coincidence, though? <clears throat> You, well, mean, I'm not. Possible? I'm. I'm not into mysticism, so I would say that that was either a coincidence or else they got their facts wrong. Well, you're not into mysticism, but yeah, you are. You are, you are if you're talking about psychic dreaming. I and don't the, consider the mind that that and... that mystic. I consider that quantum physics. I think mm. this is something that ultimately be will be explainable in terms of an enlarged worldview. You don't think that there's a possible connection that maybe. I mean, do you believe that there's a, a destiny for the world? Do you believe that it's possible that, you know, all these things that are foretold that come to be true are, are – Absolute bullshit. I don't believe that bullshit? at all. Yes. I think that – you see, I come from the point of view of evolution. What's adaptive? What's adaptive is not always for the best of the world. If we were to have an atomic bomb blast – who would adapt? It would be the insects. Mm -hmm. Humans would be gone. Insects would be the ones who survived because they could adapt. They could withstand the atomic bomb. And Keith my Richards. Point, and Keith Richards. My point, though, is that as you saw the Kennedy assassination in a, in a psychic vision, is yes. it possible that these people saw the, the you know Cortez in a psychic vision? Possible. Or Quetzalcoatl, who was often referred to as a white-bearded That's god. That's right. It was Quetzalcoatl who, according to the legend, sailed off into the Gulf of Mexico and said, I will return, just like Douglas MacArthur said, I shall mm. return during the Second World War, except Quetzalcoatl 
was a mythical figure. And again, he, he not only said that he would return, but the legend specified when in the cycle he would return. And that was this incredible coincidence that I'm not going to explain, I'm just going to point it out. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I would think, though, that if you're willing to consider the possibility that you had this vision of, of Kennedy, you might consider the possibility of long-range visions, that people, these these Aztecs and uh, yeah. Mayans are sitting around taking mushrooms, contemplating the future, might have a vision of these white men showing up. Well, why not? You know, time is a social construct, and Native Americans have the, at least before the Europeans arrived, they had the concept of the long body, that our physical body is the short body, but the body extends into the future, and that long bodies can sometimes pick up information from the future that it brings back to the short body. This, of course, is, met is metaphorical, but to them it would be no surprise. When Rolling Thunder talked about global warming, and when he talked about desertification and the pollution of the air, he was basing this on his observation of what was going on, but also he was going back to Native American prophecy. I love that term, long body and short body. That's really fascinating. Oh, the Native Americans had all sorts of concepts that are consistent with quantum physics. We devote a whole section of quantum physics in our book, about Rolling Thunder, the voice of Rolling Thunder, and there is an entire book called Blackfoot Physics, which takes the Blackfoot Indian tribe, shows how closely their philosophy of the earth corresponds to modern-day quantum physics, a book by David Pete, who's a quantum physicist himself. What do they attribute the, this, this information from? Like the, what, the, what do the Blackfeet say? How, how do they learn these concepts? Passed down over the generations, <clears throat> you can see some of it in the rock carvings, but mainly the myths and legends that have been passed down. Remember that most of the Native Americans did not have a written language. The Mayans had a very good written language, but it didn't do them any good because the Spaniards burned all of their books. And so this was passed down from tribe to tribe, from person to person, from clan to clan. And you can see it today in the legends that they talk about and how the earth and how the people in the earth are part of a whole and how part of a swerve, a change, can have ripple effects that affect the entire organism, the entire uh, family, the entire clan, the entire and the entire cosmos. And also, you know, they talk about parallel universes, which is a quantum physics concept. They talk about the upper world, the lower world, the middle earth. I'm going to throw something out at you and t tell me if this makes any sense because this is something that I've been contemplating myself over the last few years. And that, that's the idea that human behavior, even the most complex and, and, and self-destructive of all human behavior, is natural. And that like we see complex social communities in wolf tribes and wolf packs and with, uh, with various animals, we, we see the, the way they interact and we say, oh, this is just nature. This is the way you sort things out. On a much more complex scale, is it possible that all the self-destruction, all the, the, the crazy battles for resources that we see in the world today, that all of this is in fact just a natural behavior pattern and that it's, it's literally the only way that human beings exist and that this 
strange uh, contrast between massive amounts of information being available and being spread rapidly back and forth between people and all these horrible injustices that are all going on at the same time. It's, that's the yin and the yang of human humanity. That's a good way to put it. That is the yin and the yang. That's the balance. People are neither good nor bad. They're both. And the way that society constructs their behavior can serve them one way or the other. And also that like while we are doing battle with these evils, this is what propels innovation. This is what sort of propels people to move forward. That if we lived in some sort of a utopian, you know, beautiful society of orgiastic love that, you know, maybe we'd never get anything done. And maybe that's part of what the, the human animal is here for in the first place. Like the ant makes the anthill, the bee makes the honeycomb, the human being creates this uber complex society. And one of the mechanisms to ensure that society keeps moving forth at this breakneck speed is this conflict. This constant conflict that's going on, both social conflict, economic conflict, that all of this is a part of this gigantic, ever-complex natural behavior pattern. It certainly is natural, but don't overlook the other side of it. When you go to Darwin and read what he had to say, he uses terms like love, cooperation, collaboration, much more often than he uses conflict. He sees this cooperation as what engineers evolution and social progress. He never used the word, the words uh, survival of the fittest. Somebody else used that. He didn't like that term. He was more empathetic, more empathetic on collaboration and even love. Those are the words you find in his books. When I when I when I speak of these things, what I'm what I'm saying is almost like as if I was someone uh, from another world. If I was looking at the human race uh, completely objectively, mm-hmm. and I'm looking, at, what are what are these crazy things doing, and what direction? If we were trying to study them and trying to figure out what's causing all, all this stuff to, to be taking place at the same time, I, I almost would would look at it that way. That it's like maybe it's just this really complex natural behavior that's moving towards some sort of, I mean, it seems to be some sort of technological integration. I mean, it seems to be that that's what's the, the, the number one push. If we look at where, what people are doing with, with innovation, with technology, it all seems to be a connection between humans and, and technology, this symbiotic connection. Well, this is the so-called singularity that you hear so much about, yes. where the humans and the technological innovations are going to combine into a singular society or even a singular organism. Who knows? And that might be adaptive. That might be a direction that humans can go. So I think you're on the right track. I think that this is a very innovative way of thinking. But let's talk about practicality. And the listeners of your show at some point have to decide, okay, which side of history are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the side that uh, uh, foments suicide bombing and religious bigotry? Or you're going to be on the side that facilitates love and human cooperation and care for children and women and men. Which side has better strip clubs? Which side has better strip clubs? Is the side of religious bigotry? Oh, (laughs) the love and collaboration. (laughs) They have the better strip clubs, of course. (laughs) They're on the side of beauty. They're on the side of love. No doubt about it. 
the yeah, pleasure. That's where you want to lean. To. What were you going to so, say? I was just going to say when you're in your your point there, talking about how, to what extent this is natural human behavior. Keep in mind that anatomically modern human beings are most scientists would say are about two hundred thousand years on the planet, right? And until very until the last couple hundred or a thousand, depending how you want to look at it, they were living the same way forever. And you know, like forty thousand years, you'd get bow and arrow instead of spears you know that would be the one technological advance you know and and so there's been a lot of debate like what happened why wasn't there more movement and progress and all this stuff and at the moment the best theory i know of is that people were comfortable there wasn't any need you know necessity the mother of invention right it's like there's plenty of food around Plenty. You look at you know how many hours hunter gatherer people spend working compared to us. They work a lot less than we do. You know, so you know I I see your point and I agree with with what you're saying and the singularity. I think we're definitely going in that direction. But to say that's natural human behavior, we have to keep in mind that it's there's been a quantum shift in the very last seconds of human existence. Right. Isn't that sort of like almost like the Rosetta Stone? Like we figured out how to make metal and then we figured out how to conduct electricity and then we're off to the races. And it's like we put a couple of things together, the key pieces in the language of technology, and that set off this. But there's intentionality there you're you're attributing, whereas I think it's happenstance. (laughs) I think it's a question of uh, population density. Hmm. That we didn't ever choose. That's a question. I get the question all the time. Like, if agriculture sucks so bad, why did we do it? Right. As if we, you know, some guys were like, "Hey, why don't we start farming?" You know, we'll we'll make a deal. It happens. I'm reminded of this guy. This happened. You might have known about this in Sonoma. There were some. Uh, they were at a winery, and um, there's some tourists there getting ready to take balloon rides over the winery, and they were setting up one of the balloons, hot air balloons, and. And it started to pull away and the balloon guys were like having trouble managing it. And a German tourist who was standing there ran over to help them and grabbed the basket of the balloon. And then the balloon took off. It it broke free. And if you're a professional working with balloons, you never let both your feet off the ground. Oh, right? That's like the, the rule. If you're working with balloons, once both feet leave the ground, you let go. This guy didn't know that. He, oh, he hung on. So what happened? He went up. He hung on as long as he could, and then he fell. Oh! All his friends watching. He in, couldn't pull himself up. Yeah, in the parking lot. No. Oh, you can't fight man. Mother Nature, and you can't fight gravity. So that's that's how I see ad, the advent of agriculture. It's like you know, it made sense at the time, and then you get tied into the loop. You can't get out. But isn't it sort of uh, the same? pattern of complexity it's like we we figure out one thing that integrates us more deeply with each other and then from there that innovation leads to more innovations which lead to bigger buildings which lead to you know uh, different irrigation methods which lead to larger supplies of food which leads to more people which leads to more innovation because there's more people which leads to communication issues which leads to the invention of phones which lead i mean it's it's this constant technological Progression. Right. Yes, right. technological progression, but along with that comes pollution, comes desertification, comes global warming. That's the dark side of it. But the is that necessary? And is that not uh, more of the yin and yang, like the, the, the solution needs to be acquired? Like someone needs to figure out a way to have a sustainable 
sort of uh, urban environment. Like instead of this idea where we're constantly burning fossil fuels, there's other ways to extract energy. Why do not? Why? Why don't we have solar cities? We don't have. A, why don't? Why isn't Los Angeles a solar city? You want to talk about the dumbest yeah. fucking thing ever? Right. Fly over downtown LA. Everybody's operating on coal-powered electricity, and there's fucking sunlight everywhere, yeah. 360 days a year. Yeah. It, it rains four days a year out here, and there's no solar panels anywhere in downtown LA. Yeah. When I was at the University of Wisconsin back in the early 1950s, one of our chemistry professors was preaching solar power, and nobody believed him. They thought he was off the wall, and he even had invented solar panels, which other people invented also. Solar panels and solar power have been with us potentially since the late 40s and early 1950s, but they were a threat to establishment governed the reliance on fossil fuels. Mm. And so only now are we waking up, well, we'd better go in that direction if we're going to avoid the destruction of the earth. And most people still don't give that high priority. So the knowledge was there, but they were bypassed. Well, like the electric car, you know what happened to the original electric Mm. car. It just ran afoul of commercial interests. So a lot of these innovations that could have led to sustainability a long time ago were bypassed, and only now, maybe before it's too late, can we go back and bring those into fruition. That brings us back to what we were talking about earlier with uh, hemp and the uh, original issue with hemp being hemp as a commodity, Mm -hmm. where Henry Ford made the first body panels of a car. They were made out of hemp. His uh, car also ran on hemp fuel, and this was the very first cars that Henry Ford created. And uh, that's a very little-known fact that hemp in, in a fiber form, when they turn it into body panels, is actually stronger and lighter than steel. Oh, hemp is wonderful. George Washington grew hemp, by the way. And now you try to get government subsidies for hemp. You've even tried to get legal permission to grow hemp, and you run up against a brick wall. Well, we, I um, own a part of a uh, supplement company, and uh, one of the things that we sell is hemp protein powder. And we have to buy it from Canada. Right. We can't grow it in the United States. We have to right. buy it from Canada. And it's very popular. We can only get 50 pounds a day from these people because of the fact that it's so, it's so much in demand. It's really hard to, to keep, uh, keep up with the demand. And we, there's been laws passed. And because Colorado and Washington State both passed laws legalizing marijuana, they also are trying to uh, legalize hemp farming. But even though hemp is non-psychoactive, they're still facing a, a massive backlash from yes. the federal government, and people are scared to pull the trigger and start farming. Even just hemp, just, just farming hemp, which is non-psychoactive. Again, the cousin of the marijuana plant, you can't you, – you'll go to jail. They'll lock you up in a cage for growing a plant that's perhaps the most spectacular plant available to human beings on the planet Earth today. The, you it, can, yeah, it's the plant with the longest – uh, verified cultivation. It's the first thing humans ever cultivated, as far as we know. Isn't that like the best sign that we're crazy? Like <laughs> that, that that's illegal? I mean, it's one of the best signs that we've completely it lost. It certainly is a sign that we're completely irrational. I mean, on top of everything, the government is out of money. I mean, tours of the White House are being curtailed. Uh, flowers for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier are not being placed in, because of uh, these stupid little budget cuts. Why can't we grow hemp and tax it? Why can't we grow marijuana and tax it? Just think of the tax revenues that would come in and all the money that wouldn't go to the drug warriors. 
Is it shocking for you to have lived this long and seen us go from the 50s to 2013 and see where we're at today? Did you think that we would be much further along by now? No, I have always been very much of a realist, and I have never been a utopian. I just sort of take what comes. I have seen human folly in one form or another, and I've certainly committed some human folly myself. So I'm dismayed, of course, and I'm disappointed, but I wouldn't say I'm shocked. If you could address the people of the world and urge them to move in one direction or another, what what, what do you think would be uh, the best method for change for this world? Good heavens, I would never reach that pinnacle of publicity or success or egotism. <laughs> but what comes to mind most quickly would say, be a little kinder to each other. Be a lot kinder to each other, right? If I were a little more enthusiastic, I would say be a lot kinder to each You're other. you less enthusiastic? What, what, what holds you back? I would go one step at a time. Start off by being a little kinder. If a little kinder works, then be a lot kinder. Yeah, um, and that's a psychedelic state of mind, isn't it? I yes, mean, that's it is. a psychedelic ideology. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, that's one thing I've most certainly learned uh, from my uh, experiences is that there's some sort of a strange connection between human beings and when we exercise that connection, or I should say when we respect that connection, honor that connection, it enhances the way you feel about life. It enhances the, I mean, being kind to other people has a, a positive effect on you as an individual. It's like the universe reinforcing that sort of behavior. Well, this really ties together much of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about shamanism and our book, Demystifying Shamans. Shamans help the community be kind to each other, help the community work together. Shamans, in terms like Rolling Thunder, saw the need for communities all over the world to work together. Politicians haven't quite gotten that message yet. And the psychedelic ethos, if you want to call it that, is one of connectivity, is one of kindness. It's one of seeing the hologram in which we all live. It's interesting. Um, shamans and the, the term shamanism, almost all of it, comes from much smaller populations. And uh, I think that may be a, a key to the issue is that we, in reaching like New York City, Los Angeles, you, you, these 10 million, 20 million city populations, you almost, there's almost too many people to manage. And the term shaman or the idea of a shaman gets very weird. When you're in a, a tribe of a few hundred people and you have one trusted man that you've known your whole life, you know his character, you know what he's yeah. really all about, he's not, he's not trying to run some Jim Jones bullshit and start his own cult. But when you, when you have a million people, you have 10 million people, whatever you have, and you, and you start calling yourself a shaman and you gather up a following and they come from all around, next thing you know, you've got a cult. Yeah. You do. Yeah. This is why you don't call yourself a shaman. A community appoints you a shaman. If you call yourself a shaman, then you get into the whole cult mentality and you know what happens to cults. Usually they get out of hand and they lead to, lead to the Jim Jones phenomenon and the mass suicides. Yeah, is it possible to avoid that? Can't you have a nice cult? Is that something people never figured out? Like, look, they didn't even figure out the airplane until the 1800s, right? Mm -hmm. Is it possible to figure out a nice cult? 
I don't think you'd call it a cult because the word cult has taken on negative connotations. Right. But it doesn't have to be. I think you could have a nice cult. I'd have to strain my imagination to think of one, but uh, I would suppose that theoretically it's possible. Well, I suppose the Quakers that, a nice cult. What, the Quakers, I mean, yeah, I, but they're not really a cult because they never had a primary leader. Ah, uh, so see, a cult assumes that personality at the center right. of it. Okay, does it I'm, have to? Well, that's the definition of cult. It focuses on a person. You could, well, I I hear talk about the Grateful Dead cult, uh-huh. and that certainly has been very beneficial during the era that the Grateful Dead were around with all of the deadheads. And even though you had some people going off the edge at Grateful Dead concerts, by and large, it was a loving, collaborative, cooperative group. And the Grateful Dead singers themselves certainly didn't preach violence and terrorism. They preached love and peace and joy and happiness. And you hear that in the music. Even though that's called a cult, I would not use that term myself, but uh, that had a... Not one person, but a group of people at the head of it. And when the Grateful Dead ended, well, you have the memories linger on. And the members of the Grateful Dead are now all doing useful and beautiful and artistic things on their own. Burning Man? Yeah, that's sort of a culty thing. Have you been to Burning Man? Yes. Oh, you've been there? I have been to something like Burning Burning Man. I've been to one of the smaller venues. But I don't think that you would call that a cult because that doesn't focus around a particular person. I would call that a social movement, yeah. a social phenomenon. Right. I uh, I could get down with the whole Grateful Dead thing except the music sucks. I just can't. <laughs> oh, that's a matter of taste. Of course it is. I'm only fucking around. Uh, but yeah, I have a – But you issue. know, the Grateful Dead now have their own archive. It was not their idea. But the University of California, Santa Cruz – opened up an archive, and I was there for the grand debut of the, uh, of the collection, and they're doing a marvelous job in terms of showing the whole chronology of what they call the Grateful Dead phenomenon. And it is such a mosaic with no linear movement at all, it's a challenge to put that into what's going to be 24 rooms. Mm. And they have gotten donations literally from all over the world. And they've arranged it very, very tastefully. This is open to the public. And there you can get a real taste of what a social movement can do, an artistic movement also, and how it can start and what it can lead to. Yeah, I think that – in that sense, it was a very positive movement. And the dead, you know, sort of emphasized peace and love and that everybody would go around. My cousin actually followed the dead around for years and years. Mm. And her and her boyfriend used to uh, sell uh, eggs and bacon from the back of their car. They had like a little grill and they would cook in the, the, you know, these concerts and feed people and make beads and shit and do weird crafts and stuff. And I mean, she was a full on deadhead for several years, just followed them from venue to venue. Yeah. And that's a... Uh, I don't know how that happens. How does a, a band like that, that happens for them, but it doesn't happen for the Rolling Stones. It happens for, you know, it's, it's a strange thing. Yeah. that mm-hmm. It's the Merry Pranksters, right? It, the, Is that what it was? They were the house band for Ken Kesey's Merry well, Pranksters. Well, Ken Kesey had a great deal to do with it. That right, and true. they used to go around uh, in the bus. Right. Right, onward. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, and uh, they would go from town to town and do the, the what they call the electric Kool-Aid acid test. Exactly. So they would have concerts where they were also passing out acid. So they'd like pull into some town in, in Nebraska or something, you know, find a big field somewhere and everybody would come out. There would be acid and the Grateful Dead would play. Yeah. So the, from the very beginning, the altered consciousness was part of the musical it was experience. part of the Thomas Wolfe's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. is really a very good chronology. And you didn't have other bands who had a Ken Kesey sort of adopt them as a vehicle for his own creativity. Yeah. Did you ever meet Ken Kesey? Yes, I did. And I met Mountain Girl, who was the significant other of both Ken Kesey and of Jerry Garcia. Mountain Girl was there for the debut of the archives, and her daughter is the one who cut, and Jerry Garcia's daughter, cut the ribbon to open the archives. Mm. Yeah, that's a very important part of the history. Mountain Girl was Jerry Garcia and Ken Kesey's girlfriend? Yes. At the same time? No, no. Uh, there was a space dip? between the two. There's a little bit of a gap. Who got her first? I think that Jerry Garcia was Powerful first. Powerful Jerry Garcia. <laughs> How many shows have you been to? Because I've, I've been to two, but I'm sure you've been to hundreds of Gra- Grateful Dead shows. Oh, not hundreds. Good heavens. I remember that I had a full-time job at the time, and I had a family to take care of. I estimate I've been to at least 50. Wow. wow. 50 awesome. Grateful Dead shows. Yes. And yet still can hold a conversation. <laughs> See, folks, not the only, propaganda yeah. has been And not false. only was Stanley at the shows, but he was on stage. In fact, yesterday he was telling me sitting behind the drum, the, wow. the drummers, wow. looking out. And in one concert, a guy comes, sits down next to him. It's David Byrne. Whoa. Like, first, day, first time David Byrne had ever been to a yes. Dead show, and you were yeah. his guy. I had to educate David Byrne about the Grateful Dead <laughs> so that he could have an educated conversation with them after the show. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever do any Incredible. psychedelics with dolphins, or did you ever experiment with that? No, that I have fun? swum with dolphins, but I've never done psychedelics with dolphins. Not, not necessary. Being with dolphins is a high enough experience in itself. Did you know John Lilly? Yes, I knew him very well, yes. Yeah, Lily had some fascinating experiments with dolphins and psychedelics, acid, and the tanks. Yes. Sen- yeah, sensory deprivation tanks. Yeah. Absolutely. Did right. you get involved in the tank at all? Sensory deprivation. Yes, tank? I've done separate. Def- I've done sensory deprivation tanks, and again, not with psychedelics because that experience is good enough in and of itself. There are um, a lot of experiences that I like in and of themselves, and I don't need them to be augmented by psychedelics. Yeah, um, I agree with that, with the sensory deprivation tank, uh, but uh, I think it takes a little while to get, get the hang of. It does, yes. To relax and learn how to let go in there yeah. and really find those altered states of consciousness. Oh, yes, right. I've had uh, several people talk to me, like, oh, I tried to tank a couple times and uh, I really didn't trip my balls off. I'm like, wow, okay, you're not <laughs> – maybe I've described this wrong. <laughs> but again, and I don't want to be too pedantic here, but when I enter into these experiences – I do it with what Chris just called intentionality. I ask, okay, what am I going to learn from this experience? What am I going to take away from this experience that is beneficial to me, my friends, and the world at large? Every time I've taken ayahuasca, I've written down what I've learned, and I've gotten a very important lesson from each of my 10 ayahuasca sessions. The last session was so powerful, I'm still learning from it. I'm still trying to put those lessons into practice. How long ago was that? That was a year and a half ago. 
a year and a half ago, and it was so powerful, you're yes. still trying to absorb yep. it? This was in Brazil. Very, very powerful. What is the most profound thing you've learned from psychedelic experiences? If you had a most. I, I try not to play favorites because I've learned so much, but if you put me on the spot, I would say that human beings are not apart from nature. Human beings are part of nature. And that when human beings separate themselves from the rest of nature, they run amok, they get into trouble. So living a natural life with the principles of nature, of all of our relations, is the way not only to a happy life, but a fulfilling life and a meaningful life. Do you think that our current state of ignorance when it comes to that is just a, a byproduct of us expanding from the the world of primitive uh, hominids to language to explaining our feelings and thoughts to eventually understanding the full spectrum of our impact in the world? You've put it very well, and I'd like to put that into the context of neuroscience and the brain. We've gotten ourselves into a situation where... The Western consciousness is focused in the frontal lobes and in part of the left hemisphere of the brain. We ignore the reptilian brain, the medulla oblongata, the spinal cord. We ignore the paleomammalian brain, the limbic system where the emotions come in. We've even if, if ignored the right hemisphere, except for left-handed people. The right hemisphere is the holistic hemisphere, where we see things as a whole, as a complete gestalt. We are focused in the left hemisphere, which, again, for everybody but the left-handed people, we can't leave them out, they're a little bit different, focuses on linear thinking, on bits and parts and pieces, on reason, on and on, on rational approaches to stuff, and we leave out imagination, intuition, emotion, all of the things that make a person fully human. Yeah, that's a very, very important point. You know, I, I think that science is an amazing aspect of our world and our ability to measure nature and understand the very... The, just the the building blocks of of reality is really amazing stuff. But one of the things that science can't account for is love, can't account for appreciation of art, can't account for the way you feel when a great song comes on the radio. You know, can't account for the the the, the beauty of a person's personality. Cer certain people that are just amazing to be around that you see them, you smile. It's like. There's this immeasurable connection to passion and love that, that human beings share that's, again, it's immeasurable. You, there's no, you can't quantify it. You can't write it down. You can't, and it's one of the most important aspects of humanity. It is. And I'm going to put in a plug for Saybrook University because you are trying to expand the boundaries of science and say that there can be art-based science. There can be love-based science where people can use narratives to describe their experience, where we can use neuroscience to figure out what's going on in the brain, the gut, the heart, and the body. And that's not going to completely explain all of this because you have to depend upon literature and the arts and poetry and painting to do justice to it. But at least we can do much more than we've done in the past with very narrow 
conceptions of science. And in teaching in Saybrook University, you said that the courses are all available online, so people from anywhere in the world listening to this can yes, sign up? Yes, of course, they have to pay for the courses and How register much they have with to pay? you. Well, it depends upon the course. I would say people can go to our website, saybrook.edu, and they'll get the whole. How do you spell Saybrook? S A Y B R O O K. Saybrook.edu? Yes. And they can find out how much everything costs? They can. I t- handle a course on, a, actually, a certificate course that anybody can take on the psychology of dreams and dreaming, where people can actually learn how to work with dreams and learn the brain science behind dreams and dreaming. So there you have both the psychoneuro- psychoneurology of dreams, and the neuroscience of dreams. But you have the art of dreams, the interpretation of dreams, the link that dreams make with the rest of the body and with the significant people around you. What about the connection between dreams and the body's endogenous production of hallucinogens, like DMT, like uh, Rick Strassman's work on, uh, on, on, on DMT? Do you, are you aware of Yes, uh, yes. Rick Strassman, great, another great pioneer. You know all yeah. of the important people. I'm very, very impressed. Oh, he's amazing. He's a good friend. I, I love that guy. In his book, DMT, The Spirit Molecules, one, and one of the most important books I've absolutely, ever read. Absolutely, absolutely. The, uh, the brain, well, we don't really, I mean, everyone likes to say the pineal gland produces DMT, and there's some anecdotal evidence to that, but mm-hmm. we know, just forget about where it's produced. We know mm-hmm. it's made in the body. We know sure. absolutely it exists in the human body and that it's one of the most transient substances known to man meaning that when you take DMT in you know especially in a smokable form your body brings you back to baseline extremely quickly and one of the weird things about the DMT experience is that it has a very similar effect to dream states in that they're very vivid immediately after the experience but then shortly after just like a dream you're like god what happened yeah. what mm-hmm. was it and it's almost in my, you know, humble estimation, like a protection mechanism, like your 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 reality, this the material world knocking on things, weighing things. That reality is it's so hard to combine the two. The, the hallucinogenic reality, the DMT reality, is so bizarre that it's almost like the brain's like, "Listen, bitch, you can't handle this. We're just gonna erase that shit for you." You know, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, how could? I hear you. You have, I mean, I've had many DMT trips, and the the most vivid ones, they're they're so incredibly powerful right after it happens, but they're gone within five minutes. You have to, if you don't record it, if you don't write it down, it's mm. like most of the experience somehow or another slips out of your fingers. Well, of course, shifting from one type of consciousness to another type of consciousness is difficult. You're going to forget what you did. This is why when people wake up from a dream, if they don't write it down right away, Mm. they're going to forget it. And even then, they don't remember the entire dream. One nice thing about dreams is it involves the whole brain. This is why shamanism is so closely linked with dreams. Shamanism, the shaman uses the whole brain. The shaman through drugs, through dreams, through dancing, through drumming, etc., uses parts of the brain that other people in the community do not use. And in dreams, you've got the emotions, you've got the reflexes, you've got the survival mechanisms, and you've got the transcendent experiences all in one neat little package. And if you don't write that stuff down and put it to use, 
you're going to forget it. I do that all the time. I'll be in, the, in bed and I have this hilarious idea. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to forget that one. Uh, and I yeah. wake up in the morning, Justin Bieber. What about Justin it's Bieber? Gone. God damn it. <laughs> that shit happens shit. all the time. All the time, right? It drives me nuts. Like well, you get, never... get, I, I, since the 90s, I've been carrying these little um, de- uh, recorders, these mm. digital voice recorders because of that. Yeah. Next to the move. bed every night under my pillow sometimes. Because like, you just hit the button. You don't even have to wake up. Yeah. You know? that's, I'm going to have to start doing that because I record everything on my iPhone. But then you got to open the iPhone, go into yeah. the apps and the digital recorder. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these things, some of them, you just plug it into the computer and it transfers it into text right yeah. away so Ooh, yeah transfers it into text so you don't have to listen and decide that's a good one that's a bad one you just get a list yeah Ooh, that's a voice new thing. recognition i didn't know that that's good oh yeah. wow that's that's a beautiful thing yeah yeah have you uh seen any of that uh voice to text software i've seen it and i'd like to put it to use i think it's a great advance want to see something cool watch sure. i'll show it to you right now this is how amazing these things are. This is just uh, a regular iPhone. When you go into the Notes application, when you go into the Notes application and you want to make a note, you get this little thing right here that looks like a microphone, mm-hmm. and you press that, and you go, Stanley Krippner is a bad motherfucker. And then <laughs> you go like that. Oh, it butchered you. <laughs> it said, Stanley Crypt, there is a bad motherfucker. And then, oh, because I said, and oh, then. oh, but it gets oh. motherfucker. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh. I got mother. Well, I trained it. Oh, you trained, I trained it. it for motherfucker. But that's pretty good. So, like, I bet you that we'll do it again. Doctor Christopher Ryan is a bad motherfucker. There you go. Doctor Christopher Ryan is a bad motherfucker. Oh, Perfect. Doc- nice. I finally better. have proof. It's proof. It's there on the notes. Yeah. Um, that must be an amazing thing to have witnessed, to, to see people going from textbooks to the internet. To, Incredible. Yes, it is. And to, to be able to hold uh, studies and to hold classes online. Th- that's true. This is why City and Morningstar and I worked so well together on our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, because he went around with his iPod interviewing people. And he has his own website, Open Source Religion which your listeners should plug into, where people from different religious persuasions can come to a website and argue things out and discuss things on the Internet without even meeting each other physically. Some people from various ideologies can compare notes as to who's crazier. (laughs) That's a kind way of putting it, yes. (laughs) When you uh, see, like, after all you've been through, when you see, like, the shit that's going down with this, oh, we have a new pope, oh, and everybody lines up and all the... Major media and the news, they treat it like it's a real event. It's really mind-boggling. You got a guy dressed yeah. up like a wizard who runs a, a whole clan of kid fuckers, and they're taking it seriously. How, how come Jerry Sand? If Jerry Sandusky had been religiously ordained, would he not be in prison? Now? No, they would sneak him around. They would move him somewhere. Yeah. Well, that, that guy, one of the reasons why they had to get rid of the pope, for folks who don't know, is that the pope is responsible, the past pope, not the new one, the past pope was responsible for having a man released who molested over 200 deaf kids. 200. He took him, um, shielded him from prosecution, and then moved him to a new parish where he molested more kids. I mean, it's a, a huge, huge scandal. And you're right. If Jerry Sandusky hadn't been involved in the religion of football, but instead was involved in religion of Catholicism, you're, you're very right. I bet he would be, he would be free. 
There's a lot of people that are free right now. He'd be, just be shifted to another team. Yeah. Well, the, one of the things they've done is they, they take people and they, they say they're punishing them by removing them from, you know, from churches. And they bring them to these gigantic religious compounds when they have these beautiful grounds. This place in North Carolina where they took this, uh, this guy who's responsible for molesting dozens of kids, you know. It's like they're criminals. These are, these are horrible, horrible criminals. Yeah. And somehow or another, we tolerate it. It's, it's, it's a really a weird aspect of our modern culture. And give them tax write-offs. Oh, yeah. 100%. All that properties. Yeah, free. Free. Yeah. Zero taxes if you're in the cult. Right. I mean, well, do you, do you know Alex Gray? Yes. Well, Alex Gray is uh, yes. he's got his Great whole chapel. That, he's a good friend of mine. Yes, brilliant guy, yes. and a beautiful human being. Mm-hmm. It's just a really yes. loving. He was so funny. We had it on the podcast. Anytime I'd say anything negative about anything, he just like, well, you have to. He like would always find the positive, loving <laughs> side, not criticizing anyone. I'm like, I'm joking. I'm a comedian, <laughs> man. I don't really mean this. That's the Stanley. Sorry I'm to interrupt. Sure. Stanley's the same way. And so over the years, I mean, Stanley and I have known each other twenty years or something, and. You know, a lot. We talk about sex a lot. You know, we spend a lot of time on the roads. We talk about sex, and Stanley will say, "Oh, I want to introduce you to this so and so. She's so beautiful." And I'm thinking, Stanley, Stanley thinks everyone's beautiful. You yeah. know what I mean? That's <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Well, but, you think in yeah. terms of you know, beautiful in spirit. Oh yeah. yes, yeah. but Alex Gray is a wonderful artist. But one of the reasons he's such a wonderful artist is that he does take a very positive, optimistic view of people and of life, and that shows up in his art. Yes. And I think his art is spiritual. It's fantastic. I think he's, you know, historically very important. And I've been impressed with his art from the beginning. And his wife, his wife is equally talented. Yes. She does wonderful work too. Yeah, she, he, she was with him uh, when he came in and did the podcast. I, he's a true visionary artist. In Absolutely. Sense. That he, in my opinion, is he has the most accurate representations of the tryptamine world, like in in a yes. painted form. Mm-hmm. Like I, when I look at his paintings, I see like <laughs> tripping. I see like there's one of um, it's a gold one. It looks like two pharaoh heads, like they're they're facing in opposite directions. Like I literally, it, it seems mm-hmm. like something that you would see if you were yeah. uh, you were on DMT. I know the painting, right? A brilliant, brilliant artist. Um, he has actually uh, achieved a tax exempt status because this t- chapel of the sacred mirrors his uh his religion is actually being recognized as a true religion wow yeah it's it's really interesting because he's in sort of a, a like locally they don't want to recognize it. like they want the tax money from him and he's like well listen no i'm a religion like i am tax exempt and if the methodists are tax exempt and the Catholics are tasked. Why? Why not the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors? And the, you know he's like sort of duking it out with these people in his area because they want mm. they want the money. They want. He's they in want Bro- cash. Is that in Brooklyn? No, he no, no, um, upstate New York. Yes. Oh, oh, he had he was in Manhattan for a while, uh-huh. and then he uh, he moved his place to upstate New York, and he's constructing this incredible compound where the uh, the walls and the building of it are all his art yeah. like his fractal sort of geometric uh, artwork is going to be what the entire outside of the building looks like i mean he showed us some of the plans and it's it's amazing there's some of his art right there it's just amazing amazing stuff and, and in my opinion the most accurate 
in terms of like capturing that that that, that those visionary experiences, those hallucinogen based experiences, he's the most accurate in doing that. He did a portrait of my dear friend Albert Hoffman yes. that Hoffman loved, and it's now on the cover of a new biography of Hoffman. Yes, I love that picture. You know, Brian, see if you could pull up that picture of uh, Albert Hoffman that he did. Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant picture. Albert Hoffman, the guy who first isolated LSD. Um, yeah, the guys like Alex Gray, you see that vision, you see that artwork, and he makes you want to try those drugs. Like he he makes you want to like. Man, I want to see that. You know, like what the fuck? Oh, there's the yeah. There it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an amazing, amazing. Picture. It's a very shamanic uh, representation of him too. Absolutely. And as long as Albert doesn't call himself a shaman, right. we're okay, right? He's got one of Obama. See, that's just ridiculous. Alex needs to go read about drones. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so Alex's wife wasn't pulling a yoko on you. That's good to know. No, she sat down during the whole thing. She let him talk the entire she didn't time. Scream. Why does she uh <laughs> does she yoko occasionally? No, no. No, 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 no. no, 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 t- no. I just can't get that thing out of my head now. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I always had a negative opinion of yoko or at least not a positive one, but that one just made me fucking howl. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, Stanley, thank you very much for joining us. This has uh, been a really fun time. I, I really enjoyed it. It was a real honor to get to sit down and talk to you. And it was a brain. pleasure, and I learned a lot from our discussion. I learned a lot from you. Is there anything you'd like to say to the, the young folks out there, the, the people that are in charge of moving this thing to the next era? If you, if you're, you're getting to talk to more than a million people right now. What would you say to them? You know, we've been talking a lot about, about, about psychedelics, and I'd like to remind people that that's only one way to gain wisdom. It's not necessary. You can do just about the same thing by immersing yourself in nature, by having a loving relationship with somebody, by meditating, by praying, by immersing yourself in great literature and great art. Psychedelics are important. They were important in human evolution, but... There is no one way, there is no one road that's best for everybody. Yoga, meditation, transcendental meditation, sensory deprivation tank use. There's a lot of different methods to sort of reset yourself and get an objective look at the surroundings where you're not caught up in the momentum of your life. Exactly. The important thing is to do this with intentionality, to know where you're going and to do it in a disciplined way and learn something from it. And one of the coolest things about this life is that we get to meet and talk to people that have lived longer and then have had more experiences. And it's beautiful that a person like you is willing to share those experiences and come on uh, a show like this and express yourself and, and give us the, the wisdom of your years and give us the insight of all your, your, your contemplations on this world. I really appreciate it, man. Very kind of you, and very kind of you to say nice things about the voice of Rolling Thunder and demystifying <laughs> shamans. And now you can get these books. Uh, they are available on Amazon. They um, certainly are. Are they available on Audible.com? No. No, not yet. Not yet. Okay, well, we got to work with Audible and find some dude to – who would you like to read these? Maybe Duncan Trussell. He would be the perfect guy. Hey. Great. Hey everybody! He would be great. He would be. Do you know Duncan? I know of him. Yes. Would yes. you like to? If we come to San Francisco, would you do a podcast with Duncan? Absolutely. Gotta, that would be. We're fun. coming to you next. You came to us. We will come to you. Okay. Um,
one other book that I, I have to mention because I'm in the middle of it right now and I fucking love it. And he's right here. Christopher Ryan's Sex at Dawn. Uh, yeah. We had him here this week, but you can't have him enough. You're <laughs> fucking awesome, dude. And your Thank book's you. amazing. So Demystifying Shamans and Their World. Uh, that is one book. Uh, the Voice of Rolling Thunder. That is another book. How many books do you have out? You have a gang of a books. A lot. I have 10 books out. They're all available on Amazon.com, the ones that are still in press. Beautiful. Powerful Stanley Crypter. Thank you, sir. You're really welcome. appreciate you thank coming you. on here. All right. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning into the podcast. We will be back next week. We have uh, some, uh, some interesting guests next week. On Monday, we have uh, Brian Callen. And uh, Tuesday, we have Doug- Douglas Rushkoff, who's a, uh, a brilliant author as well. Can't wait to talk to that man. It's going to be a, a really interesting conversation. Thanks to Hover for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you go to hover.com forward slash Rogan, you will get 10% off your domain name registrations. Go there, check it out, and be well. Thanks also to audible.com. If you go to audible.com forward slash Joe, you will get one free audiobook and 30 free days of Audible service, a, uh, a brilliant service, and one in which you can get Sex at Dawn read by some other asshole. But at least <laughs> Christopher Ryan gives the monkey story. At least he gives that. Uh, thanks also to Onnit.com. If you go to O-N-N-I-T, use the code name Rogan, you will save yourself 10% off any and all supplements. I do not know. People keep asking me if any of the uh, chimpanzee uh, kettlebells are still available. We only were able to make a thousand of them. People are like, why is it limited? Are we trying to milk people with their money? Everyone's so negative. Listen, folks, it's a piece of art. These kettlebells, it's hard. We had to create a mold. We had to hire an artist. We had to get this turned into this functional piece of exercise equipment. And it's, it's not that easy to do. So we can only get a thousand made in our first order. We're not trying to hold you back. We want to sell as many of them as possible. And yes, we have more coming. We got a gorilla coming. We got a lot of, we got a zombies. We got some crazy shit headed. I don't want to tell you anymore. Uh, go to onnit.com. O N N I T code name Rogan. Save yourself some cash off any of the supplements and we will see you people on Monday. Thanks to everybody who came to the ice house last night. Yeah. We had a great fucking time as always. We love the shit out of you. We'll see you soon. Big kiss. Mwah.